Hello, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing very well. Before we begin, please don't forget to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Please help us bring this amazing work, this amazing conversation, and all the power of philosophy to millions and millions of people around the world. freedomainradio.com slash donate. So we have four callers, count them four tonight. The first caller was a woman from Australia who wondered why she keeps getting blamed for murdering Aboriginals. No, she doesn't have any suspicious plots in her backyard. She just seems to have privilege of a certain hue. And um, how do we remain sympathetic towards the plight of minorities without feeling like we're personally responsible for all of the disasters? I'm sure you faced it. Aboriginals is sort of the Australian equivalent of you're responsible for slavery. So a good discussion about that. Now, the second woman who called in has a very moving question. Like I've talked about how men have been pretty badly treated in the West for the past couple of generations. And I've said, you know, it's going to be hard to win men back without an apology. So this woman called up, very sensitive, very curious about the issue. What would an apology look like? What would it mean to get an apology for having been badly treated by gender for a couple of generations? It's a great question. Third caller. He wants to tend his own garden, as Voltaire writes about in the novel Candide. I don't want to be a peaceful parent. I want to have maybe private conversations. I don't want to be any kind of public hero. Do I have to? Do I have to? It's a great question. And I've obviously had some time to think about this. So we had a very in-depth exploration of that. And I hope you'll find it motivating and inspiring. And the last caller saying, okay, after divorce, after a family breaks up, how come we never hear about deadbeat moms? Why is it always deadbeat dads? Why is it always the man who is considered to be at fault post-divorce? And we talked a little bit about his history, and we talked about the general principles and how it plays out in the legal system, at least as I see it. So I hope you'll find that interesting as well. Please don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Stefan Molyneux. You can use fdrurl.com slash Amazon for the affiliate link, fdrpodcast.com, to share these shows. And away we go. All right, up first today we have Jacqueline. She wrote in and said, I'm a middle-class white female, seventh-generation Australian, and I've also been accused of killing aboriginals. You killed aboriginals is the Australian version of you are responsible for slavery. I've had my fair share of being called racist and xenophobic for attempting to discuss contemporary issues. It's particularly awkward in the workplace where I am no longer prepared to discuss such issues. I recently saw a male TV host denigrate a Trump supporter in an interview by calling him a white middle-class man. The reporter himself was a white middle-class man. How would this scenario have played out if he had said similar to a woman? Or if a female reporter had said the same to a man she was interviewing? That's from Jacqueline. Hello, Jacqueline. How are you tonight? Or tomorrow, because you're in Australia, right? I'm very well. Good. Good. <laughs> I'm I'm on your next morning. <laughs> right. You know, it's uh, it's a little dispiriting because you know what? I was growing up. Australians were considered to be the toughest cats around. Yes. So if Australians have gone full cuck lord, um, <laughs> that may be like the last drain of uh, white spine to go down the sink, so to speak. It's very sad and uh, deeply disturbing, frankly. <laughs> right. Now, I'm not much of an expert on. Well, I'm barely an expert on anything, but I'm certainly not much of an expert on Aboriginal relations in Australia. Do you do you want to give us the the brief intro to this uh, this whole situation? 
very briefly, uh, uh, sadly, uh, very much a minority group in this country. I would say that the general feeling towards our Indigenous population is one of very good feeling, uh, huge understanding of their cultural heritage, uh, the art, contemporary art, which is doing very well on the international market. So definitely, no doubt about it, the average uh, Australian is very, very supportive. On the other hand, we have the issue of welfare. So we've got many generations of our Indigenous population on welfare, which produces its own set of problems, of course. Right. Uh, we also had something that world might not be aware of. In about the 50s, there was something called the, the uh, Stolen Generation in Australia, where a lot of the government and church bodies took the young kids out of the outback area and put them into white homes and educated them. And it was from a feeling, uh, a position of trying to do the right thing, giving them a leg up, uh, giving them schooling. It's now considered a, a blot on uh, white history. Sadly, a lot of them did lose contact with their language group uh, and didn't know who their relatives were. So in a nutshell, that's about where we are now. But yeah, and it's, for those who are interested, a similar thing happened in Canada with these uh, the residential schools, right? Right. And the the big picture seems to be something like this, which is, that originally the the relations between Europeans and natives were one of um, okay you know you you take this area we'll take our area mm -hmm. and then what happened was there was a a kind of bad blending which is that you know the welfare state got established and all of that then it became a tragic situation for the natives because they couldn't. Uh, seem to function very well in Western societies. And there was a fair amount of resentment on both sides. One is, you know, you stole our land and our culture from the natives. And the others are, well, okay, that was hundreds of years ago. That wasn't me. But now you're stealing my tax dollars by <laughs> staying on welfare and having lots of kids. And so if we're going to talk about predation, how about we both stop, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. we'll stop taking your land and you stop taking our welfare. Yeah. And this originally, you know, maybe coexistence, and then when that didn't work out, okay, you take this part, we'll take this part, and then this bleed over into welfare became a big problem. And then what happened was when the frustration about the welfare consumption and the general destruction of the culture occurred, it was like, okay, well, this not integrating is not working, so we're just going to integrate. And in Canada, that was scooping up a bunch of kids and taking them to these residential schools where um, you know, obviously it was a government program, so it was a complete disaster, uh, as you can imagine, all around. You know, the integration that works is the integration that happens through the free market. It doesn't happen through any kind of government intervention. And um, then what happened was this became the new bad thing that um, non-natives had to pay for forever. And I don't know much. I mean, I know that the Aboriginals, uh, average IQ of 62 in Australia, that's... Uh, not optimal, I guess you could say, uh, and um, it's not uh, particularly great in America. And and there is this, I don't know, it's this boring um, story that uh, you see white people, the only mean people in history, <laughs> the That's only right. yes. mean people in history. And yep. again, I don't know the Aboriginals, but here in North America, well, there was a group of people living here before the current Native Americans and Native Canadians came over. And they pretty much wiped them out. Right. <laughs> the, 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 the whites have been, without a doubt, the nicest 
too nice. The nicest occupiers of any society that anyone has ever seen. I mean, I'm not saying this as a white person. This is just objective. I, I mean, look, they bring I agree better technology. Yeah. Sorry, let me just finish. They, they, yeah. they bring better technology. They bring better systems of government. They bring the free market. They bring science. They bring medicine. That wasn't Genghis Khan's gig. Genghis Khan's gig was bringing a whole lot of swords and semen into the local <laughs> into the local <laughs> ecosystem. He was not. Uh, he was not that. Hey, okay, okay. We did rape a whole village, but here's some jetpacks, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the whites have really, really tried to do right by native populations, and native populations, a lot of them, have generally perceived this as a giant weakness to be exploited from here to kingdom come. So, yes. sorry, that's my sort of brief rant. I'll turn it back yes. to you. Yeah, look, I, t I totally agree with you 100%. There is perhaps a slight difference here in Australia at um, the time of early settlement when England was sending out its criminals. Um, to be quite perfectly frank, a lot of those people, they weren't just um, stealing loaves of bread, there were political prisoners from Ireland, etc. But in the main, there are a lot of people that I would say were relatively uneducated and uh, they, they weren't from the educated classes. And I think a lot of those people had a lot of issues and there, there were definitely situations where there were people who were not treating the Indigenous population at all well. It was disgusting. On the other hand, there were many people that were going out of their way to form fantastic relations with the Indigenous population and were doing wonderful things collaboratively and working together. But that side of the history is rarely mentioned. Well, there's no profit in that. <laughs> I mean, if you can't push the big giant white guilt button mm. on the sack of gold that every white person is perceived to have around his waist, mm -hmm. well, there's no point. There's no point promoting positive uh, mm. things. And and the whole system, of course, at least in Canada, you know, is arguably fairly hopelessly corrupt. Um, right. You know, I mean, the, the the government doles out money to these. Uh, tribal chiefs and and then the tribal chiefs dispose of it as they see fit according to some treaties and I mean it's the usual cluster frack of disaster and I mean the, the solution is freedom I mean obviously the solution is is freedom and uh, it's not what happens up here in Canada you know there are regularly um, the, the natives you know, women are raped they go missing there are kids snorting photocopier fluid and and just getting into all sorts of suicidality and it's a complete disaster, and we, we all want this life without resistance, but the moment we get it, our, our personalities and entire culture seems to fall apart. Mm. We've got a similar, sadly, a fairly similar situation here. On the other hand, we do have some fabulous um, Indigenous people that have gone on to uni, they've got scholarships to Harvard, they've done some brilliant, wonderful things, no doubt about it. And my big argument is that they're rarely written about, they're rarely um, discussed, uh, and, and of course they're wonderful beacons of light for both their community and our community, and it saddens me that those who are doing very well, even those who are just working as teachers' aides, are doing a fantastic job. They're just not mentioned, and it's, it just seems so unfair to that community that they're not. Well, I mean, I think that's inevitable given that the leftist, and in a lot of ways the general, the general explanation for all social differences is racism or sexism. Mm -hmm. Hopefully both, if you can get the, the one too. <laughs> yes. Right, so if, 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 if women are not earning as much as men, it's because of sexism. Mm. I mean, and, and that's such a ridiculous argument. I mean, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> because, you know, business people, if you can get exactly the same work from someone who's earning 20% less, of course you'll go hire that person. Mm. Of course you will. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a matter of different choices, uh, uh, childbearing, you know, it's not my fault that nature didn't give me a womb, uh, although apparently financially it is. But so in, in, all, in all disparities between groups, the only conceivable answer can be bigotry, mm-hmm. with two exceptions. The two exceptions are Jews make a lot more money than whites, but it's not because Jews hate whites. That's, yeah, you, you can't talk about Asians make a lot more money than whites, but it can't be because Asians hate whites. But everyone below whites earns less because of white bigotry. Yes. Right? The, the, the Jews are the Asian. Wow. <laughs> if there's any statistical disparity. So, so what happens is, you know, when you talk about Asians, when you hear about Asians, right? What do you hear? Oh, Asians, East Asians, right? Chinese, Japanese, South Koreans, and so on. Ah, you see, but they have a very strong work ethic, and they're very strong family structures, <laughs> and very good ethic. Okay, so, so it's about culture then. <laughs> In which mm. case, it's not my fault <laughs> that mm-hmm. some groups are doing badly. Um, and, and with Jews, you say, oh, well, they're very focused on education. It's a very cerebral religion, and there's a complicated Talmudic text and blah, blah. Okay, so it's about a focus on education, which I can't fix. <laughs> right? I can't go on. There's no amount, no amount of tax money that flows between me and other cultures that is going to fix a lack of focus on education, right? Right. Um, so, so everyone above whites, whites are below them, and it has nothing to do with bigotry on any part of anyone who's above whites. The Jews and the East Asians make more because they just make better decisions, they, they, they have better cultures, better families, better whatever, right? Okay. So they're doing better than whites has nothing whatsoever to do with any anti-white sentiment. Ah. However, when you cross the white threshold, the white barrier, when you go down through the cumulus, everyone doing below whites must be doing below whites, not because they've made bad decisions or have bad cultures or dysfunctional families, only and forever white hatred. And that's one of the many dichotomies that goes into these, uh, this, this mess, this nonsense. And all of it, all of it, my friend, is all centered around one thing. The complete rejection of any fundamental differences between ethnicities. The complete rejection. Everyone is the same. Everyone is the same. Therefore, all differences must be due to prejudice. And that is a voodoo explanation. It's no explanation at all. And, and it, it requires no empirical investigation. It requires no science. It requires no knowledge of biology. It requires no knowledge of IQ. It requires no knowledge of brain volume, brain size, white matter density. I mean, it, it, it's just one of these, ah, oh, I know the answer. Where did the universe come from? God made it. <laughs> Why are there volcanoes? God, <laughs> volcano got angry. Okay, good. So we don't have to study any geology. Okay, because you've got this answer that satisfies some particular profit center within society. Why this? Oh, because, right? And anyone who disagrees with me is evil. Uh, That's a religion, right? Yep. Where did uh, the universe come from? Well, God made it. And if you disagree with me, you're a sinner. Yes. And uh, where does uh, inequality come from in society for aggregates? Racism. Misogyny. Sexism. And if you disagree with me, you're a sinner. I mean, it's a, it's a silly religion, and the only reason it's not silly is that it's incredibly dangerous. Yes. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, and um, I'm sorry that you get blamed for this stuff. 
and and you get blamed for the stuff. I assume that you don't have a bunch of aboriginals chained to your basement producing hieroglyphic iPhones at the point of a whip, right? I mean, you're, <laughs> no. you you'd love for them to do well. I mean, we, we all. Absolutely. I'd love yes. every I'd love every group in society to do well. But um there is I don't know that it, it's like it's just become masochism. You know how um uh, masochists get a, a sort of sick sadistic almost sexual pleasure out of being humiliated yes well i i shouldn't say i, I hope i don't say that with too much authority <laughs> let me tell you how it goes well, there are Step studies done. <laughs> that's right that's right i'm currently working on a research project called me forever but the, 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 i think that it's really become very pathological white people now it's like you just you have to march into the decaying fire of, of white guilt and and it's just become something that is so automatic and so expected and so built in you know we're like an abused spouse you know just yes. just going back to be beaten up yet again i mean it's become that pathological yes. i mean i was just reading this study at the moment that uh, in in england only two percent of young men feel fully masculine that's compared to nearly 60 percent of older men oh dear two percent of men feel fully fully masculine Excellent. I, I can feel civilization getting ready for the giant leap forward off the Gosh. cliff. Oh, it's terrible. Well, when I was, uh, when I, this topic sort of came up, it was actually about seven or eight years ago. And I was called a racist because um, Islam was in the paper a lot, you know, ISIS, etc. And I just happened to mention about the newspaper article that uh, Islam was a totalitarian state and, uh, you know, I didn't approve of it. Just a passing Wait, you mean comment. Islam or ISIS? As, or the Islamic. Well, Islam, ISIS Islam, is Islam. An, is it, Islam is a belief set, right? I mean, it's, it's an ideology and a religion. That's right. It, it, you, you can say a totalitarian ideology, but you can't say a yes. totalitarian state because My Muslim apologies. is. Correct. No, no, I just want to be clear. <laughs> yeah, right. So I just happened to having this vague discussion and immediately got called uh, a racist for, for bringing the topic up. But what was interesting, right. Stefan? The person who called me a racist and was totally opposed to me even mentioning this was um, an Indian woman, Hindu, who had migrated to Australia. Well, you think the and Hindus would know a little bit or two about Islam, I right? would have thought so. That's why I was interested. She then said she hated democracy and she wanted Sharia law in Australia. Wow. Well, that's right. It shocked me. I did, and I really wanted to discuss further with her. The most I was able to draw out... Well, I just wanted to know where she was coming from. So a couple of years later, I tried again, and she said her mother had originally come from Pakistan, and when they were doing the um, the division there, her that family had oh, to the move partition out. after the Correct. Second World War. And the, so they yeah, had okay. to move out. So I can appreciate she um, has a, a background there, but she still believes uh, wants Sharia law here refuses to discuss the topic. So I asked a friend of mine who's quite a prominent psychologist what was going on with this because I couldn't figure it out. And she said there's a lot of migrants to countries around the world, it would be the same in Canada, USA, England and here, who never fully understood the political system in their own country. They migrate to democracies and have literally no idea of the system into the country they move. So she actually put it down to this lack of understanding. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. 
I don't know either. I mean, the, we we had Helmuth Nyberg on the show who said that uh, when when IQs of a country and IQs of a country dip below ninety, I mean, you 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 really can't have any kind of functioning Correct. democracy. A functioning democracy, mm-hmm. at least in theory, requires that people be at least willing to consider putting their own immediate self interest to one side and, and focus on the bigger good bigger good of society. But that requires the deferral of gratification and seeing the big picture and understanding the long-term effects of short-term decisions. Mm. And that's all high IQ stuff. Yes. It's all high IQ stuff. And I've got a big speech, so I don't want to do it yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, if there's anything else that you wanted to to add to this, I just I don't want to like steamroll over a big speech, and and of course the other thing too. I mean, you can't be a racist for um, questioning the ultimate virtues and values of particular religions because religions are not racist. That, well, that's right. And um, cat, I have yeah. as much problem with Cat Stevens as everyone else. <laughs> cat Stevens, the singer who converted <laughs> to Islam. Yeah, I mean, well, I remember yeah. being in I remember being in Morocco in 1999. Uh, I went there for with a friend of mine for for Y2K. And I had a, a Muslim driver, uh, and um, he was telling me all about the people who'd all converted from the West uh, to Islam. You know, like, this was somehow to create some momentum for me. <laughs> Look, oh, yes. they've cleared the path. <laughs> I don't want to go down the path. But don't worry. There's no – everybody's cleared the path. And, um, yeah, so the idea that it's racist. It, there's, there's just a series of pejoratives whenever – Whenever anybody senses that white people might develop some sort of in-group preference, there's just a whole bunch of pejoratives. They get fired like shrapnel at the white person to scare them away from any sense of um, self-interest, right? You're, you're correct there, Steph, and I'm noticing it, sadly, increasingly. There's no two ways about it, uh, and particularly in our university system. I mean, I can remember donkeys years ago when I was going through tertiary education. I originally went to art school, so... I'll declare my hand there. But Wait, you went to art school and yes. you have these opinions? Good for well, you. Wow, thank, impressive. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it was at art school I was introduced to Anne Rand, I might add. I also had an interest in economics, so I was probably a little bit different. But in art school, it wasn't in those days. It wasn't entirely leftist. I mean, it was uh, that was back in the days when people actually believed that it was uh, the job of the artist to reflect the culture that's produced it, and huh. in so doing to challenge existing dogmas. I mean, it's lost its way these days. But you see, I went on to university, and that was where I got the shock of my life, where everybody was espousing Marxism. You, you couldn't stand up in a colloquium and say anything without first saying, well, the Marxist viewpoint is. So it sort of stunned because we didn't do that in school. And I've noticed that just hasn't stopped. Uh, and it bothers me to be That frank. hasn't, sorry, what? It hasn't stopped. It's still happening uh, as far as I can gather in the universities. And there's this oh, it's much very, worse now. very leftist. Yes, it's terrible. It's, yeah. I thought it was terrible well, then. But, well, but back then, you could have. You could have your energetic debates with a Marxist, yes, and they they wouldn't pull out all the verbal abuse. At least in my experience, yeah. and maybe that's just the way that I debated or whatever. Correct. But same. I, yes. They were they were theoretical Marxists who had a framework and they had a particular or a set of arguments and evidence yes. and so on. And yes. I had you know, as you can imagine, a lot of debates 
with Marxist professors and Marxist TAs and Marxist students mm -hmm. and, and, and socialists and so on. And mm -hmm. they were pretty intense, but yes. they were never vicious. No. And I think that's very much changed now. Now, I mean, if you even question this stuff, like you're just a bottomlessly evil human being whose life yes. must be destroyed. Well, that's right. And that wasn't right. the case when I went to school. No, not, no, not at all. In fact, I, I think when I challenged those documents at uni as an artist, at one stage I was called the bourgeois bitch, which I was quite proud of being called. Yeah. That. I thought it was a wonderful You know, I'd like to be called the bourgeois bitch at least once in my life. <laughs> I thought it was fabulous. And we all laughed about it. I mean, it wasn't meant badly. But on that note, you know, in those days uh, I went to a Catholic private school where some very clever girls went. And after I left school, I was invited in this cadre of very clever women from my school that had gone on to uni to do great things. So I was delighted to be part of the group. Anyway, my girlfriend then had married a secretary of the Communist Party. That should have been a clue to me. So that's this <laughs> dinner party. Yeah, hello. So that's dinner party. No, I, I don't get that, but maybe you can explain it later. I'm kidding. Go ahead. At this dinner party, every Everybody there was not just socialist, but quite strongly communist. And I thought, hang about, these are bright girls, well-educated, so are their husbands. Okay, well, I was, to be frank, a uh, utopian anarchist and spoke quite strongly about that viewpoint. And no, and I love they, Marxists colliding with anarchists because oh, they have yes. such they, – they literally – because the whole point of communism is, is to lead to a, a, an anarchist utopia. And so the anarchist says, okay, why are we going in the exact opposite direction? Like, why do you <laughs> want to go south if you want to go north? Just keep going north and be an anarchist. And they're like, but, but, but I want to I eat some kulaks. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> well, that's exactly what happened. I'll never forget this evening, actually. I got ordered out and they never spoke to me again. But uh, they, they did that old argument argument of, you know, in our ideal world, a street sweeper can become a neurosurgeon and they'll all get paid the same. And I just said, how does that work? And questioned it. And uh, ultimately, people got terribly upset and I was ordered out of the home and none of that group ever spoke, have ever spoken to me since. <laughs> well, you see, and that's because they're radical environmentalists, which means that I don't mean environmentalists like... Uh, clean water, they're radical environmentalists in that there is no physiological differences between human beings. Everything is in economic or environmental mm -hmm. determinism. And therefore, mm -hmm. the only reason someone ends up as a street sweeper rather than a neurosurgeon is because of a system. And if you change the system, then a street sweeper can become a neurosurgeon. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, that that's is right. so and get paid fundamentally the same. Everybody false. gets paid the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. And why a surgeon should be paid the same as a street sweeper and, of course, questioned it strongly. No, they didn't. Um, you've probably heard all these arguments yourself. Well, and, and to me, um, that's fine. Then, then go start a business and go start a hospital and pay your street sweeper that sweeps in front of the hospital as much as you, um, as much as you pay your neurosurgeon. <laughs> like, just don't, don't, don't talk to me about stuff. That's you right. know, like, I don't know if you've had the, the windbags of future potential in your life a lot they're such exhausting people oh man you know one day like I had a friend of mine I'm gonna start a dojo you know he was into <laughs> he was into martial arts right it's like okay you know what's your plan oh yes uh I like the word <laughs> dojo <laughs> and you know just stuff like like just uh, it's fine when you're young you know when you're young everybody spins their big gossamer spider webs of, of dreams and, and hopes and plans and, and it's all delightful and, and that's a very wonderful part 
of of childhood. You know, I my my daughter, like I mean, if if she could go one day to the next without a new career choice, I think that would be well, somebody else's daughter, so not mine. And I think that's wonderful. But then what happens is eventually you just get sick and tired of people saying what they're going to do. You know, I'm going to go and do this and I'm going to go and do that. And it's like, oh, God, just stop it, right? And it's like, well, I want a world where go make that world. Well, I can't because system. Okay, well, then shut up. You know, just go make that world. And um, uh, so the people who are like, well, I think that the Road, the, 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 the world should be organized like this and everyone should be paid the same and, and we should pay men the same. Okay, go start a company and do it. Like, sh- shut up about it. Just stop talking about it and go do it. That's right. This is something uh, we were talking about what is uh, going on in uh, universities. And I read something the other day um, written by Robbie Suave. Suave? Suave. And uh, we'll put a link to this below. In 1969, Justice Macklin Fleming of the California Court of Appeal wrote a letter to the dean of Yale University's law school, objecting to the institution's brand new affirmative action plan. Yale law intended to implement a quota system. 10% of the incoming class would be black, regardless of qualification. Uh, Fleming, this is the the justice, was opposed to race-based admissions. He said this. He said he thought that admitting students on the basis of skin color rather than merit would, would, quote, serve to perpetuate the very ideas and prejudices it is designed to combat. So his basic argument was that if a bunch of white people get exposed to a bunch of underqualified black people, what are they going to think? Hmm. Well, they're going to think that, well, blacks can't cut it. Blacks are underqualified. You know, like if you bring people in who are underqualified, it doesn't matter about black. It could be redheads, right? If you say, well, you know, you got to have a a 95% score to get in, but we'll let any redhead in who, after a while, people are going to say, well, redheads are, you know, they don't really, really do very well. And this is, um, uh, this is something interesting that, that he wrote. So this is what Fleming said. He said, no one can be expected to accept an inferior status willingly. The black students, unable to compete on even terms in the study of law, inevitably will seek out other means to achieve recognition and self-expression. This is likely to take two forms. First, agitation to change the environment from one in which they are unable to compete to one in which they can. Demands will be made for elimination of competition, reduction in standards of performance, adoption of courses of study which do not require intensive legal analysis, and recognition for academic credit of sociological activities which have only an indirect relationship to legal training. Second, it seems probable that this group will seek personal satisfaction and public recognition by aggressive conduct, which, although ostensibly directed at external injustices and problems, will in fact be primarily motivated by the psychological needs of the members of the group to overcome feelings of inferiority caused by a lack of success in their studies. Since the common denominator of the group of students with lower qualifications is one of race, this aggressive expression will undoubtedly take the form of racial demands. The employment of faculty on the basis of race, a marking system based on race, the establishment of a black curriculum and a black law journal, an increase in black financial aid, and a rule against expulsion of black students who fail to satisfy minimum academic credentials. And this is 1969. Gosh. For heaven's sakes, 1969, almost 50 years ago, and all with, with you know, eerie accuracy, if you don't know philosophy, with mm-hmm. eerie accuracy predicting uh, what was going to go down in universities uh, after these um, 
after these policies go in. Gosh, that's reality today. It is. It is. It is a terrible reality, and the degree to which it has harmed the black community is uh, incalculable. Incalculable. I mean, everybody wants the black community to do well, and this idea that well, we'll just we'll just shrug off the standards. Uh, it's confirming that nobody thinks they can compete, and that's that's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. There are there are many more black qualified black applicants out there than could possibly fill up the halls of Harvard. I mean, just based on on the bell curve, there are, there's a no shortage of intelligent blacks who can fill up the halls of Harvard. But just lowering the standards um, has just been so catastrophic, and now it's so tough to unwind. So. Well, lowering you, the standards. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. I was going to say it's very unfair to those people within those communities who are naturally gifted and are mm. doing extremely well just on their natural talents. It's just not fair on them. And I, I get back to our indigenous population. It's the same here. It's not fair on those. We're not all born with the same talents and gifts, and that's just all there is to it. You wanted to mention a little thing or two about uh, Donald Trump as well? Well, yes. Um, I was quite surprised a few weeks ago on morning TV, an interviewer here in Australia was interviewing a Trump supporter. <laughs> <laughs> from America. I think on. there is one. <laughs> well, apparently. They found him. They found him and uh, this chap interviewed him on um, morning on a morning show. And chap was just talking, chatting along like you and I until the interviewer just suddenly becoming, came quite, ran him down and then ultimately called him a white middle-class male. I was shocked by that comment. For a start, we're not part of the American political system. But secondly, it made me immediately look up this reporter and thinking, well, where does he come from that he's not a white middle-class male? And um, highly educated from a highly privileged family. So I thought, what on earth was that about? And how would that have worked if he'd done, would he have done the same to a female? I I was just astonished by his bias. No, of course he wouldn't have. No, and he's just virtue signaling, and I, th- I think one of the things that is important to understand is the degree to which idiots have been promoted over the past mm-hmm. 50 or 60 years. Yes. The idiots. Yes. Idiots. Um, you know, one of the things that keeps me engaged and, and alive and, and curious is recognizing I'm dumb. I'm an idiot. There's so much that I don't know. And and there's so little that I'm willing to actively assert. So little. Because, man, if you keep looking things up and you keep researching and you don't always go back to the same Zuckerberg-fueled well of confirmation bias, well, you come across some really mind-blowing stuff. And as you keep coming across mind-blowing stuff, you realize that a lot of the things that you took for granted before were wrong. And there's nothing more humbling than relentless curiosity. And when I see people, and I, I, I'm like that kid in, in the sex, Sixth Sense, I see certain people. <laughs> I see people who are confident. The, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, like right? the less intelligent you are, the more certain you are of things. And the more certain you are that everything is easy and the answer is just this. You know, when I, as I mentioned before, when I was uh, younger, it's, it's the period people. The period mm-hmm. people like, da-da, 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 period. It's like, that period is not 
a big gaping chasm of intellectual curiosity we can take a log flume ride through. Mm -hmm. And so the people who were like, oh, well, you know, disparities, racism, period. <laughs> you know, and anyone yeah. who questions, that's just because we have a system now. Well, I mean, the system is, is teaching people terribly. I mean, it's, it's anti-teaching them. It's, it's disassembling brains, mm -hmm. not assembling thought. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a whole bunch of idiots um, who have been floating out through the school system. And, and, and because there are a whole bunch of idiots, and I don't mean idiots like, like bad people. I mean, some may be a little more responsible than others, maybe this guy. But you've got, because public schools create a huge demand for simple, stupid, wrong answers. Because people don't know how to think. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I mean, people who can't use their legs create a huge demand for wheelchairs. And people who can't think create a huge demand for the media. Sad right. thing is, if, you know, if the media wasn't there, they'd probably learn how to think. And that's one of the reasons why this show is uh, becoming so popular. Mm -hmm. And there's so many, like this guy, I mean, how can you possibly, like, what is it? It's not an argument. Not an argument. Doom reviews their arguments. But this mm -hmm. is not an argument. And the fact is that, that anyone could say that and, and think that they've, they've contributed anything other than opening up their head to show the big, giant, liberal, echo, star chamber of nothingness inside is, is remarkable. Well, absolutely. And this chap calls himself a journalist and uh, is, is um, revered as being one. Not. He's not. Uh, no, and people like, are sucking this up. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Of course. Because if you're asked to think, for I think for most people these days, I think there's an existential terror when being asked to think. Well, it's true. And in fact, I, I have a name for these people. I call them bubble people. <laughs> they're, they're people who, and I've spoken to people like this, I'm sure. Hey, you what have you got against a... <laughs> bubbles? I like bubbles. Sorry, go ahead. Well, they, they, they live in this nicely enclosed bubble of well-being and personal happiness and satisfaction and emotionally satisfying lives. And they really don't want anything to pierce that bubble or change it, and I'm, I'm I'm meeting so many of them these days that uh, it it quite bothers me. Hence the term bubble people. Well, let me just I'll try and keep this brief. And and this is an apop an, an apocalyptic and terrifying series of thoughts for me, which is ties in very much to to what we're talking. About. Fortunately, I don't have to shoehorn it in. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, you know, when I was reading about Venezuela, I was reading about Brazil, and apparently it's Chile, not Chile. Oh, right. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, people were pointing out, well, you know, Chile is doing better because it's like 90% white, and you can see the population of white people going down in these, uh, in places like Brazil and, and uh, in Venezuela, and that's what, you know, you, you get this slide towards chaos, and I, I don't think it's, you know, I... The IQ stuff, uh, I mean, let me be clear, I, I, IQ is not, is not determinism. IQ is not determinism. I would rather be a low IQ person with philosophy than a high IQ person with propaganda. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the reasons why I work so hard to bring philosophy in a digestible form to people in the world is because... It is the greatest advantage I can give to the less naturally gifted that I can conceive of. Yes. 
and and this isn't just my theorizing, right? I mentioned recently that there was a study done where they put thousands of kids in. It just all they did was they taught them philosophy for a couple of weeks, and everybody's scores increased in a variety of areas. And the disadvantage, the lower kids, the least high-scoring kids, improved the most. Oh, fantastic. I hadn't heard of that study, but I wish we're they would go, it. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to go schools. all into this. And it cost a grand total of 23 bucks. $23. Right? So, so when I say, oh, you know, low IQ people in the world, to me, that's philosophy will equalize that the most that it can be equalized. Yes. The most that it can be equalized. And, you know, I, I have been around low IQ people and I've talked with them, uh, with them about philosophy and they get it relatively yes. quickly because it's yes. common sense. Correct. You know, Marxism they have trouble with unless yes. they're, you know, greedy. Uh, oh, <laughs> you mean I don't have to be a neurosurgeon? I can get paid? like anyway. but, but I really, really want people who have uh, less uh, IQ to have philosophy. I'd, I'd rather give it to them than to the high IQ people who are probably going to screw it up anyway because <laughs> they can talk themselves in and out of anything. I have so, thought of so, it like that, yes. And, and so this is why, I mean, this is why I'm not doing a lot of abstract logic trees and, and like I'm trying to mm, talk to people where they live and hit them in the solar plexus with the fisty-fisties of reason and so on. And so, and, and here, here's why, here's why. Because I have this great fear which goes something like this. And I, if this is playing out in Central and South America right now or in other places, my fear is this, that smart people come to a country. And that country, because it's not populated by smart people as a whole, is doing badly. I mean, it's doing okay, but it's just not doing that well. And smart people come along and they say, oh, okay, well, here's some better government. And, you know, you really shouldn't be so corrupt. It's not really good for you in the long run, not good for your society, not good for your kids. And you should have more loyalty to abstract ideals than you should to your immediate blood relations. You should have some free market stuff going on. Oh, and by the way, we've created this giant technological civilization that turns that black crap under the soil into something incredibly valuable, right? We need your oil. And so here's a trillion dollars, Venezuela, over 17 years for the government, right? And what happens is when this, the smarter people come to the less smart countries, they create these mechanisms, these structures, these mind maps, these institutions, these opportunities, these liberties, and the population explodes. The population explodes. It doubles, it triples, quadruples. Why? Well, because longevity is increasing, medicine is, incre is, is better, nutrition is better, infant mortality goes way down, you've got antibiotics, you've got ointments of various kinds. I'm not a doctor. And so what happens is you are injecting a massive amount of nutrients into a closed system called a country, and the population goes hog wild. I mean, you know this in Australia. What happened when they got rid of the dingoes? Yeah, well, we've still got some dingoes, but, uh, but, but yes, correct. When they got they rid of the predators. the ecological. What, what we've got now is feral cats that are destroying our um, natural uh, fauna. 
Well, but I mean, the, the the story that I remember when I was younger was when some of the natural predators were chased away. The the rabbits went mental, right? I mean, as our selected species oh, at, well, to do. It, it, they, they, it was just a perfect uh, ecological structure for rabbits in this country. No two ways about it. Foxes are a problem too. They're not native. Right. Yes, but right. yes, your so, point's correct. Yes. So what happens is the country's population goes through the roof. I mean, you saw this in South Africa. Uh, you've seen this in, in uh, South and Central America. You've seen this in, in a variety of places, in a lot of the colonies, right? The population goes through the roof. And then, for reasons that I don't even want to bother getting into right now, resentment builds, frustration builds, charges of racism builds, uh, anti-colonial feelings build, and they push out the smart people. We got it from here. <laughs> Thanks for all that complicated European stuff. We now hate Europeans. Off you go. Get lost, you racist, colonial scumwads. We've got it. We're taking over. And then what happens is all of the structures, the institutions, the freedoms, the integrity of the system brought in by the outsiders decays and falls apart. But that is what supported the massive growth in population. And then what happens? Well, there's a horrifying, potentially horrifying, inevitable culling of the excess population, which no longer has the mindset, the institutions, the freedoms, the property rights, the rule of law, all of the things which supported the explosive growth in population have all been undercut. And like Jenga, like a house of cards, down it goes. And they return to where they started. And what I mean by that is they return, more or less, to the population that they started with prior to this colonization. Does that make any sense? I, I, I don't know if this is all true. Uh, obviously, I don't, right? But I'm, it, this is something that is of concern to me. It's a, it's a good argument. It's one I hadn't um, fully considered before. And uh, as you expressed it, it uh, makes some good sense there. Certainly, it's one worth um, exploring more. And that's pretty important to the United States. I was thinking of the United States. As you yeah, you talking. wanted to mention a thing or two about Donald Trump. Is that right? Oh, was well, it yes. just this reporter or was it anything else? Because you, you, everyone's talking about it. I mean, the guy's oh, got to be the most talked about person on the planet. Oh, yeah, look, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I had spent some time in Manhattan, and I, I must admit, when I was originally there, I'm not American, so, but nevertheless, I was more of a, a Democrat persuasion, shall we say. Um. But having said that, when Trump threw his hat in the ring, I was immediately interested and uh, very quickly, almost immediately supported and t still do what he intends to do. He's a bright guy. He knows business. He knows culture. He's got the best of the best talking at him. And I, if I was so inclined, I'd be writing a book on his media presence. He is just so clever in that respect. So, yes.
Yeah, oh no, he's uh he's uh he's a he's a force of nature. Yes. And I was just I was just reading I mean it's so funny. I mean and the Democrats have no clue what to do with him. No. They've been so used to bossing about the rhinos for the past generation or two. Like they have no idea. No idea what to do with Donald Trump, who has well, actually listened a lot to the, of the American Republican. People. Yeah, but not oh, yeah, the Republican Republican yeah, yeah. Party. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take in a drink. I wouldn't take a drink handed to me by the Republican establishment if I was Donald Trump. You know, it'd be one of no. these like, like these, these like Macbeth vials of overspilling <laughs> with uh, goo and tentacles coming out of it and spiders crawling up and down it and dry ice pouring down here. This will make us all feel better. Well, maybe not you, but but everyone else for sure. And like I was just reading how <laughs> the. Um, Hispanics are like, you know, I think 20% for Trump and 80% for Hillary and something like that. And this was something supposed to be like anti-Trump. Like, mm-hmm. well, that, that means he's not popular with Hispanics. And, and it's like they, they, they don't even know that they're making his case for him. They're making – so the Republican – because the, the Republican voters look at those numbers and say, well, shit, if we get more Hispanics in here, I'll never see a Republican president again. I mean, it's like – <laughs> they don't know what to do. Well, no. Hispanics don't like him. Oh, okay. So if you are a Republican and you'd like to see any kind of Republican influence in national politics, then an excess of Hispanics is not going to help you. So, and uh, people always talk about this deportation thing like it's unprecedented. It's, oh, come on. Deportations happen all the time yes. in human history. But it's a topic for another time. But that, That's right. But yes, they have. <laughs> do you come across... Um, any, you know, even secret, slutty Trump supporters? Like, I wouldn't tell anyone, but... Um, I, in my immediate circle, there's some um, people who, um, very intelligent, well-informed people who do support him. But I also have, uh, in my immediate uh, circle, people I just wouldn't have this discussion with because they're not capable of it. They just loathe him and that's false, as you say period so that's the end of the discussion so i find it's uh, one of those topics i have to be here in australia anyway i have to be very careful about who i will discuss that with hey you know who mark zuckerberg did not invite <laughs> to discuss suppression of conservative views on facebook donald trump that's oh that's a whole issue too that whole <laughs> facebook thing at the oh, moment in terms man. of social media bias good grief <laughs> Oh, Good yeah. grief. It's, how yeah, many billions of people are there? Gosh. Yeah, they're, they're not informing people. Um, Gosh, they're terrible. They're just, uh, just controlling people. No, well, it's, that's it's, the it's bubble. Well, there's the bubble people. As far as I'm concerned, it's the bubble people that enjoy Facebook. Oh, no, sorry, I did want to mention too, um, got, I got a message from an Orthodox Jew who is pointing out that uh, Orthodox Jews uh, in general, and he's got some data to back this up, but Orthodox Jews in general, very pro-Western civilization, uh, yeah. are not for multiculturalism. Uh, and it's mostly the more secular leftist Jews who he pointed out are in fact assimilating, right? Uh, right. In terms of intermarrying and so on. So correct. that's a correction which I put out. Um, you know, Have I verified that from here to eternity? But... Um, I just wanted to to point that out. Um, so, okay, uh, is, there, is there something else you wanted to mention? Well, first of all, uh, please tell me you had children. Uh, well, I, I, when I were married, within uh, very early in my marriage, my husband died. So, unfortunately, 
Um, oh, I'm so sorry. No, I didn't. I didn't remarry and uh, didn't have kids. Um, it's a regret, but as a result, I've tried to put. I've worked, you know, I've lectured in university in the past. So I've tried to put effort into other people's kids in the community by trying to uh, get debate and critical, rational, sane thinking happening. I don't know that I've been that successful, but I do at least try. Good for you. Good for you. And I'm, I'm very sorry <laughs> to hear about uh, about your husband. That is uh, that is heartbreaking mm. stuff. And, mm. you know, it's testament to what a great guy he must have been that you were not that interested in remarrying. No, I didn't want to go down that path again, but uh, one can still live an active and productive life. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, a great pleasure to chat. You're welcome back anytime, and thank you for keeping the uh, for keeping the good fight alive oh, in the sunny days called thank, tomorrow. Thank you to you, Stefan. It's been a terrific discussion. I've got a couple of things to think about after this as well. All right, thanks, and okay, thanks, thank We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. All right, up next is Linda. Linda wrote in and said, I'm a 38-year-old single mom. Stefan has made the case for women apologizing to men for decades of abuse. While I have apologized to men and boys in my personal life, what would an apology from women to all men look like? That's from Linda. Hello, Linda. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you tonight? Uh, I'm well. I'm well. It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's a great question to ask. And God love you for calling in and asking the question. I think you have now the attention of a couple of million men uh, about this conversation. And that's twice as many balls, if I remember correctly. So uh, I, I really appreciate you bringing this, this, this question up, this, this topic up. Um, what have you said to the men uh, in, in your life? Well, that's really interesting. I, I guess most of them, you know, they haven't taken the red pill. So they've kind of done the dismissal like oh it's no big deal um i'm sorry did you say what did they say or what did i say no no what did you say (laughs) i'm sorry i'm nervous um what i said was was i I would just kind of try to sympathize like uh you know when things come up about feminism that um or like you know how they're always having to um submit to their wives like oh well you know if the wife will let me or I'll be sleeping on the couch that kind of thing and um, you know I'll just try to sympathize and they just kind of dismiss it and say well it's not a big deal or you know how um, one friend in particular he was joking how um, people will just attribute his success to being a white man and I'm just like oh white male privilege you get to take no credit for all your hard work you know and <laughs> Um, oh, so so you're sort of uh, like chipping away kind of person, right? Which is fine. I'm just right, right, right. Just trying to sympathize and and see if they if the light comes on at all, and it, it not much, <laughs> not much there. Right, and um, you had some uh, apology texts or some versions of apologies that you wanted to bring to the hive mind of the planet. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I wasn't sure if kind of an, a Facebook-type apology was what you had in mind, but uh, since I wrote to you, I um, came across some really good ones, and they gave me permission to read them to you, um, if you don't mind. So um, do. one's a little bit longer than the other, but they're pretty short. You have a lovely voice, as I remember from our last conversation, so feel <laughs> free to you, – you can read if you want, like, the fine print of a car ad if you want. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it sounds thanks. that nice, so go ahead. Very sweet. An open letter to men. I wish to start off by asking, how are you? 
I know a very simple question, but a question that is not asked to men very often. How many times does the media or schooling system really ask men how they are? Not a lot. I then want to say how sorry I am that you have to live in a world that you essentially created, that now has turned against you and your very being. I'm so sorry that many people of my gender have turned against you. It's one thing for the state to turn against people, but another for the very group you're biologically made to care about to turn against you. I'm sorry that you have to put up with such aggression. I now need to thank you. I thank you for working so hard for your families that you love and care for. I thank you for being great fathers who love and peacefully raise your children that often you have to fight for. I thank you for loving the society enough to still put up with the feminist rhetoric that pounds you like feet to the footpath. I thank you for being men because there is nothing at all wrong with being a man. Lots of love, a female that cares. And that's a, that's a longer one? Uh, there's, there's a shorter one. Shorter one, okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being men, for staying strong in these times of man-hate, and for refusing to be ashamed of your gender. There is no woman on this planet that has not made use of and benefited from everything that men have created and built for humanity. And yet so many of them openly say that the world would be a better place without you. For that, I am sorry. You do not deserve to be accused of crimes you didn't commit and be called names by those you are by nature meant to adore and protect. You are men, and in this group, that meaning FDR listeners, I, I dare say particularly valuable ones too. And as such, I do not even want to imagine a society without you. So thank you for being men. Hmm. Hmm. And what do you think of these, uh, these texts? I like them. Um, I, it, I assume they're appropriate. written by women. Yes, of course. Then they have yeah. lovely foreign accents that I don't do justice to. Yeah, no, this is that's like I, I assume there's faint rose petals in the stationery in the back, and it's it, you know it's nice. It's it, the sentiment is nice, um, but it's not taking a lot of ownership for the contribution. And I'm not saying you should or anything. I'm just in general, right? Feminism as a whole, uh, not that popular these days. Um, like there was a survey in England, this came out January 2016, a survey in England. Um, what what percentage of people do you think will call themselves feminists in, in all of England? Hmm. I don't know. You said it's not getting that popular. So 20, 30% maybe? Seven. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, of, of the 8,000 people surveyed, only 560 used the F word <laughs> to describe their views on equality. Women are a little bit more likely, 9%, only 4% hmm. of uh, men. And um, younger women more likely to call themselves feminists, 19% aged 18 to 24, but they were also most, more likely, most likely to oppose feminism, right? So uh, they are sort of split. 8% um, of young people aged 18 to 34 um, versus 2% of people aged more than uh, 55 were opposed to uh, feminism. About 61% of those aged 18 to 34 said they were sympathetic to feminism, a figure that jumped to 72% for those aged more than 55. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's going down. That's a huge difference. Um, it's a huge difference. So, you know, feminists, you know, I mean, if you're in college, right, they're 
they're all over the place. But in life, uh, it's not, it is not a movement that is doing very well, to, to put it mildly. Yeah, of course, a lot of uh, power in, in, in politics and, and to some degree in the media and uh, in um, academia, of course, there everywhere so to speak mm-hmm. but uh it is not um uh it is not that strong uh, a um uh, a movement and um it's you know this it's can be higher in in american uh, in america it's about a quarter but it's um it's uh, it's so so in 20 in 2013 there was a poll, and 28% of Americans uh, considered themselves uh, feminists. And in two years, two years later, right, so 2013. Oh, can you hear me? Hello? It was Linda that dropped. Oh, Linda, are we back? Um, okay. She's not back yet. Hold on. You oh, there, Linda? I'm, I am. Okay. okay. You just dropped for a second. Sorry so, 2013, we got 28% of Americans call themselves feminists. Have a guess. What happened two years later? Mm. It cut in half, 14%? Yeah, it's uh, pretty close, down to 18%. Mm-hmm. From 28% down to 18%. So in real-term, feminists dropped from 89 million to 58.5 million. More than 30 million people bolted from feminism in two years. 30 million people. Nice. Yeah. There's hope. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that just astounding? Hmm. Isn't that just astounding? It is. And this is, I think, largely due to the internet. I mean, the fact that there's a multiplicity of voices out there and that there is um, not this monolith of the media and academia and, and the arts and so on blaring the same strident trumpets and so on. It, it is an astonishing, astonishing change in a couple of years. And that is a good step. And men need to understand that because, you know, men who are interested in these issues, you know, they face a lot of feminists out there and a lot of feminists making a lot of noise, but they're, they're dying off. This whole, the whole movement. Because what happens is, of course, feminists come forward and they say, well, we're about equality. And people are like, well, yeah. Well, who, who could disagree with that? Of course, of course, women should be equal before the law. Of course, people should be equal in their abilities to, to hold contracts and equal in their opportunities. And of course, there should be no institutional barriers between the genders for what they can achieve in their lives. So... When you talk to, and in particular, this, this collapse in America, because when, when you talk about equality in America, most Americans, at least those of European extraction, most Americans, will, when, when you talk about equality, they think you mean equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Ah, but the internet has pointed out repeatedly, vociferously, and at many times delightfully offensively, that when a lot of feminists, when most feminists talk about equality, they're talking not about equality of opportunity, but equality of outcome. And that is one thing that there's still enough republic, not republican, but republic-style Americans 
who believe that equality of outcome is should be called what it properly is, which is communism, that when they understand that feminism does not stand for equality of opportunity, but rather equality of outcome, they get its totalitarian, unshaven armpit odor, right? Hmm. Because feminists are still complaining about the pay gap. Well, the pay gap, it has been illegal, not that it should be, but it has been illegal in America since the mid-60s to pay a woman less for the same work as a man. They won that semi-totalitarian battle 50 years ago. And they're still complaining about it. And the other thing, too, is that men, when they hear a woman complain, they'll try and make her feel happier until they really get that nothing's going to make her happy, right? Then it's just like, okay, well, you know, short circuit. We're done with that. And that is something that the internet has really, really helped people to uh, understand. And in so doing, it is the internet and, and, and men's rights activists and, and work that people like you were doing. Linda, I mean, doing an enormous service to women. Because if, if and this is true for, for women, for minorities, you name it, right? If, if somebody's constantly dripping, you know, this Chinese water torture, it's like the simplest torture in the world. Apparently, it's completely maddening. Have you ever had this? <laughs> I don't know if, you, if you've ever, you woke up at night and there's a tap dripping. <laughs> it's not dripping a lot. You know, maybe every 10 or 15 seconds. Have you, have you, ever, you ever experienced that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you get back to sleep? No. <laughs> no? Because <laughs> your brain is like, count down to the next tap. Count down to the, because, you know, case selected and all, right? So, count down to the next tap. Bleak, bleak, bleak. So, the water torture is just drip. And the gallons drip, of drip, wasted drip. water. And that's still. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> I should really get up. And it's like, well, if I get up, I got to turn on the light and then I'm going to flood my retinas and I might not get back to sleep. I don't know. I'm a. I'm a sleep hysteric, so I have to manage all this stuff for myself so I get good night's sleep. But um, that drip, right? <laughs> Just drives you crazy, right? And this drip, drip, drip of you're hot done by, there's a system that's out to get you, you're being oppressed, it's terrible, you're the worst life, and you know everyone's trying to rip you off. And the people who just constantly whisper that, like Iago into Othello's ear, you know, there's a, in Hamlet, the, the uncle who wants to sleep with Hamlet's mom, spoiler, it's okay, it's been 400 years, I think we'll survive, but the, the uncle who wants to sleep with Hamlet's mom kills Hamlet's dad by pouring poison into his ear while he sleeps. Hello, mainstream media, right? I mean, pouring poison into people's ear. Constantly, you're bad, you're wrong, you're oppressed, you're, well, you're, you're a victim, you're a victim, right? It's the endless victim thing. Victim, mm-hmm. victim, victim. Everyone's bad, everyone's bad, everyone wants to rape you. Mm-hmm. It's young women in campus complaining, complaining these days that men don't want to buy them drinks. Oh, God. Well, of course they don't. Not because they don't like buying women drinks, but because they don't want to be accused of roofing someone or raping someone or getting someone drunk or ha, right? There's this app. This is how insane things have become between the genders. There's this app you can get. I don't know if you buy it or not. You can get this app. And what happens is you record a consent for sex. Yeah, I've heard of that. Right? I don't know how detailed you're supposed to get. Like, if you're supposed to flip through and pause on various pages in the Kama Sutra or something like that and say, well, I'm doing that one. That one with the upside down monkey, maybe. But 
that one with the water buffalo, absolutely not. Right. So I don't know if you're pointing and you know, you're drawing out what you're allowed to do or whatever it is. But but what happens is you record this app. You record a video in this app and it gets sent to some server where it remains encrypted and is only accessible by law enforcement. In other words, if someone complains and, and it was not consensual, then you have this app which can be unlocked by law enforcement. Now, I guess in some parallel universe, and I understand the, look, I understand the caution, don't get me wrong, but in some parallel universe, have the, like, does it not make, make any sense that the relationship between the genders has devolved to the point where you have to give porn to the cops in order, in order for them, like, in order to, you know, here, this is my solution. And I understand it. I mean, this is how mental. Maybe only are. sleep with people you can actually trust. <laughs> Well, that's tough. That's tough because, and I, look, don't get me wrong. I, I completely agree with you. But I, you know, I assume that the men who get married to women also assume they can trust them. And then 70, 80% of the time, the woman gets dissatisfied, walks off with half his stuff. I mean, they assume they trust uh, those people. And um, I agree. I mean, Dating unstable people is a, it's Russian roulette, except Russian roulette, it's over quickly. <laughs> this is not, not that way. But um, I think people have gotten that, that, that this, this like, relationship between the genders just gone, gone kind of haywire. It's crazy. Gone yeah. kind of haywire. And as far as the apologies for all of that, I don't know. There's a funny thing. Tell me, tell me what you think, Linda. You know, since I always like to be as frank as, as possible. Tell, tell me if, in your experience and in your opinion, if this is way, way off the mark. Okay. Do you think it's an unfair statement to say that a lot of women, A, want to boss a man around, and B, hate it when they succeed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So I'm not, I, you know, my sort of generally ac accumulated observations of my close to half century mark is not way off base, at least as far as what you see. What is up with that? It's like me buying a, a remote, like a voice activated robot and then getting angry when it doesn't obey. <laughs> like, I mean, and what being secretly satisfied when it doesn't listen to me. What is that all about? Want to boss a man around? Hate it when it works. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Break it down for well, all the way. I mean, I think it's a it's a subconscious, you know, lack. You know, it's a lack of self knowledge. Like you don't, not everything that you want and need is on the conscious level, right? I mean, no, you can't flush it down there and think you've answered anything. It's contradictory because unconscious. No, no, that doesn't explain anything. I'm sorry. <laughs> Try again. Okay. Well, okay. So, um, but a man you can boss around. You can boss around because he's in love with you, right? So isn't, to some degree, bossing a man around a sign of how much he loves you? Okay. Is that fair to say? All right. Yes, I can see that. Wait, you sound like you're like <laughs> you're calling for backup as we speak. Wait a minute. He's backing <laughs> me up in the corner. What the hell is going to happen next? No, it's nothing bad. It's nothing bad. I'm just, right, because... No, I just, I don't see that that being like love, like to let go of your own assertiveness because you're in love, you know? I don't know. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, I don't mean that. What I mean is that if, 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 a, if a man doesn't care about you and you ask him to help you move, what's he going to say? 
Okay, sure. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Right? You get where I'm going with this, right? right? Okay. And so, but if a man is is romantically interested in you and he wants to, and you you ask him to help you move, what's he going to say? Yeah, I'll say yes. Right. I mean, this is this is my this is me at the age of of, of twelve. Right. I've mentioned this story before, but it's something that sort of circles around in my head when these topics come up. Me at the age of twelve, I have one pen in school. One pen, and oh, yeah, there's this girl sitting in front of me. Yeah, this girl sitting in front of me. She asked me to borrow her pen. Asked me to borrow. Her. She wants to borrow my pen. I lend her my pen. She says, "Can I keep my uh, your pen?" What do I say? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, you can, because because I hit puberty eight minutes ago, and apparently now <laughs> I have no free will of any kind anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that is, and this has sort of happened countless times that it's very hard for yeah, a man to say no, and and that to some degree is a measure of a woman's sexual power, sexual market value. Right? Is that like the shit test, sort of? Is Not that, yet. That different. Okay. No, this is this is the vampire test or something. You know, it's like, will you offer me up your jugular if I don't feel like going to get some tomato juice from the kitchen, right? And and so, if a woman asks a man to do something for her and he's like, no, do it yourself, right? So so that tells her that she doesn't have, so to speak, the hooks right in. Mm-hmm. And this is it sounds bad. I don't mean it in that way at all. But that's sort of the test, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're younger than me, but I'm sure you remember that Madonna video from the 80s, Material Girl, mm-hmm. yep. where, you know, she's, you know, stunning. I mean, she's like the Mona Lisa of trailer parks, right? But she's, you know, fairly stunning in that get up and all these guys are carrying her around and doing all these things for her and offering her up all these things. And she could ask them to do anything and they do because they're bo- dazed by her um, sexual charms, right? Romantic charms or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing with uh, Marilyn Monroe. Oh, there's a great song. Diana Krall covers it called Peel Me a Grape. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's, a, I guess, another one which was covered by the, I guess, recently recovered from a bike, random bike mission, uh, Shinette O'Connor, um, about um, get out of here and get me some money too. <laughs> you know, this woman just discontented and just ordering the guy to go get her resources. Um, uh, you, you had plenty money, 1942. You let other women make a fool of you. Why don't you do right like some other men do? And this wanting a man to do something for you, wanting to boss him around, is a mark of sexual power. And again, it, it sounds sinister. To me, it's not. It's just sort of a reality. And I think that's why a woman likes to be able to boss a man around, because if she can do it, he's... Um, well, he's uh, putty, so to speak, right? Yeah, that makes sense. But on the other hand, on the other hand, if she can keep bossing him around, then he's not going to be a fit competitor to get resources for her when she's pregnant, right? So the, the, the bossing him around is this is a sexual power, but she needs him to be out there fighting with other men to bring home the biggest buffalo, right? Right. So I think she likes to be a, want to boss him around because it's sexual power. But if she can keep bossing him around and he just does, then he's like, okay, <laughs> you know, the honey-do list, right? You got a honey-do list. Then what happens is I think she feels that it's an annoying thing because then he's not going to be out there fighting for the family to get enough resources for the 12 kids or whatever, right? And I think that is one of the challenges that is, you know, 
I, I think we all understand that men are, you know, sexual creatures driven by sexual drives and desires and, and defined by reproductive success. Obviously, that's how evolution works, right? Right. But there's this funny thing where we, we don't look at women the same way. You know, that a woman is defined by reproductive success and a woman is, is going to have her biological imperatives and she's going to have her um, drives and her desires and, and it's all going to have been tweaked over the last couple of billion years to be as efficient and productive and selectively successful as possible, right? I mean, it's like, you know, men are penises, women are angels, you know, it's that old cliche. And it's so well hidden that, you know, the, the Sam Cooke song, or Sam Cooke cover of the Gershwin song, you know, your daddy's rich and your mama's good looking. I remember first hearing that when I was about 18 or 19. A friend of mine was really into Sam Cooke and gave me the greatest hits. And then I became like a Sam Cooke nut for a couple of years and still am. Change going to come. Just listen to that on headphones. and It's operatic style is stunning. Because um, he wrote that song because he was frustrated because he said, how come Bob Dylan writes blowing in the wind and, and all these great songs and you know black people can't write something of equal power and he sat down and he wrote change gonna come and it's like okay mission accomplished much more powerful than whiny bobby but um there is this so so with regards to this men want to please women but if they please women women are not pleased <laughs> right i mean I, I mentioned recently that there's a study that shows that if men and women don't do sort of clearly defined male and female chores, like the standard thing is the men do the outside, the women do the inside, the men do the mowing and the women do the laundry and stuff. If couples successfully achieve more egalitarianism in the distribution of housework, women end up unhappy and non-orgasmic. Isn't that wild? Right. Yes. I've heard about that. And... I think all of that stuff where the, the mystique of women and the, you know, as opposed to women are biological animals and mammals, like men are biological am, anim, animals and mammals and, and make decisions uh, both consciously, unconsciously, and at a basic level of biological hormonally that need to be understood. And I think women have really milked the bossing men around. Right, because when a woman is being courted, she wants the man to do, to to be her slave. I'm really exaggerating here, but you know, indulge me for a sec. Mm-hmm. When a woman is being courted, she wants the man to be his slave. When a woman is married, she needs the man to be assertive. Mm-hmm. But because women postpone marriage so much, or get divorced so much, or or don't get married, uh, or whatever it is, they get stuck in this phase of bossing men around rather than needing men to be assertive. A mm-hmm. girlfriend wants to boss the, the boyfriend around. The wife needs the husband to be assertive because she's going to be disabled by pregnancy and, and childbirth and so on. And because marriage has so fallen out of the landscape from young people in particular, it's like we're just stuck in this phase of women being bossy and not needing male assertiveness because they can always run to the state if the man doesn't work out and so on. So I think that factor is not unimportant in this whole equation. Listen. Okay. hope I'm not mansplaining too much, but uh, what do you think? <laughs> okay, I, I'm trying to understand the connection with the apology. <laughs> um, so when you had, I mean, do, do you know what I mean? Do you know, understand my confusion? I do. Okay. Do you want I, me to 
see if I can connect it. I, I think I can. I mean, I think I know why. Okay. When you became a single mom, this must have been terrifying. Yes. Right? Terrifying. Yes. Terrifying because you have a, you know, life, life depends, the life depends on you. And your life becomes immeasurably more complicated. I mean, just scheduling and getting kids to doctors and dentists and, you know, all, all the stuff, right? Having time for them. and Just mm-hmm. totally different, right? Making me cry. <laughs> I mean, I, I really get that. I mean, I, I sympathize with my mother to this degree. I mean, it was a brutal experience for her when she became, well, made the choice to become a single mother. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying, right? Yes. And what, what are you what are you feeling when I when I talk about that? Well, I really appreciate the empathy. It's a high wire act with a baby strapped to you, right? Yeah. And in that fear, I'm not saying you, but I think in that fear, a lot of women want to run to the state. I understand that too. Mm-hmm. Because some other guy, especially once you're, you know, when you're a single mom, your sexual market value goes down a lot, right? Yes. Hey, want to date me and the baby? <laughs> <laughs> how do I look in this breast? Uh, sorry, how do I look in this dress while I'm lactating, right? It's just not, right? It's not that good, right? Right. And... I think a lot of women want to run to the state because a guy, like once you're a single mom, the quality of guys that you can attract goes down significantly. And of course, some guys will just be in it for the sex, right? And then then that's not a stable situation. Right. For your kids, for your income, for your survival, right? Right. So you got to run to the state. That, that, you know, that the government check will always keep coming, but men are unstable. Men are, are inconstant. And I, I understand that. I mean... If the only way you can eat is with a government check, what are you going to do? Starve to death on principle? I wouldn't. Right. So I think an acknowledgement that there has been this tendency, this great temptation, that if the government was providing free sex for men, the quality of relationships would go down, the quality of courtship would virtually vanish. And when the government provides free money for women, similar things begin to happen. Mm-hmm. And the apology, I mean, I think there's, there's two, two levels. The, the first level is the women who have fallen into Grudge Canyon, Anger Canyon, Resentment Canyon, never to be seen again. Those women who have divorced a man, who've badmouthed a man, who've not taken ownership for the men that they chose, who maybe have kept even decent ex-husbands away from the uh, kids who have taken the maximum conceivable amount of alimony Mm -hmm. and child support out of the man's twitchy, eviscerated hide. Well, I think there's apologies that need to be made to the men individually, right? And, And you've said, like, you've apologized to the men in your life, which I... I respect and admire for what that's worth. So I think that's sort of the individual stuff that needs to occur. But the second thing is, is it fair to say, Linda, that women are pretty 
sensitive to being shamed. Yes. I think so. I mean, that's how society used to run. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, why didn't girls in the 50s get pregnant? Yeah, because they would be shamed. I mean, there was lots to it, lots more to it, but the whole family would be shamed. This is why the girls would go and visit an aunt upstate for six months and Mm -hmm. give the kid up for adoption and, and... Everybody would try and we will never, you know, these clues she says, you, or you, you go give up the kid at adoption and the mother's driving you home, cold face, white lips, set eyes. We will never speak of this again. It just becomes something you can never, ever speak of. And that's painful because it's isolation, it's rejection, it's ostracism. Even within a relationship that continues, it's ostracism of a central topic. And so there's the, I think that's the apology to men individually for using the power of the state, as is often the case, to to harm their interests. But I think there's also the apology to men as a whole for not stepping up and shaming women who are doing wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, I mean, it, it, you know, this, this you know, we're, we're going to take the man for everything he's got, right? I mean, Trump's yeah. first wife. Don't get mad. Get everything. Ha, 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 ha. Right? If she'd have been ostracized through that, I mean, if people had just said, that is hideous, parasitical, horrifying behavior. You know, Heather Mills, one-legged, hoppy vampire of of Paul McCartney's fortune, what did she take him for, $100 million? Something like that, for a marriage that lasted a couple of years? Come on. Women should have made short work of these people. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. And I know it's uncomfortable, and I know it's work, but you know, I've always, I've always you know, th- thought of these stories. I saw a terrifying movie called Once Were Warriors about the Maori. But um, th- th- when I grew up, there were lots of stories of, well, the police weren't around. Some guy raped a girl, and the other men all beat him up. Uh, there's a great song by a Canadian band called The Tragically Hip called 38 Years Old, which people should listen to. He's a Gord Downey is a great mournful balladeer, but that that men sort of step up and enforce the rules. Uh, in in a, another terrifying um, movie, Goodfellas, right? I mean, when one guy is having an affair that's threatening the family, the two other guys sit him down and say, you can't do this. This is bad. This is your wife. This is your mother of your children. Have your thing on the side. Like the men stepped in and enforced the rules and were willing to be unpopular and were willing to be attacked back. Mm-hmm. And if women want to claim equality, then women need to do that too mm-hmm. with other women. Men can't police women because the women can always run to other women and say that mean man is <laughs> oh, he's sexist. Oh, honey, you're right. Men can't police women. Only women can socially police women and that's how it used to work. You know, I know that there were, I mean, I know this for, for certain, that there were times in the past when a woman, a girl, would get pregnant, the, she would tell her mother, and the father would never know. We're going abroad, you know, right. this kind of thing. Right? We're going abroad, and, and, and we'll come back, and, and the father never knows. That's, that's, that's the women policing the women. The mother's policing the daughters, the sister's policing the sisters. That's what you need for there to be a free society. 
And that's what allows men to trust women. Because if all men see are these ferocious in-group preferences where women never criticize each other and they rah-rah sisterhood every crappy decision made by women, you know, like, like when, when false accusations are made by women. Mm-hmm. I see this. I see this. You know, and I covered this Gameshi trial. And the judge basically said, hey, these women were not honest while under oath. He may have put it even more strongly than that. And they're still being interviewed and they're still being cheered on and there's no. Right? Yeah. That kind of stuff is pretty disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. So even when women act in ways that, you know, by any objective standard would just be heinous. There's a lot of this pull together sisterhood stuff. And men, men see everything. You know, we may look like we're not paying attention. Oh, we're paying attention. Right. We're paying attention. And women gave up on this policing stuff. And I think that's one of the gravest problems because this this could all have been solved with the proper amount the proper amount of internal policing. So I think the apology is to some degree for that. Like I went for uh, more social comfort and more social ease. Okay. You because know, you know, in in you know, false accusations. When the false accusations fall flat, what do a lot of women say? Oh, the system is broken. The system needs to be reformed. Mm-hmm. All women need to believe, be believed. Well, yeah, unless mm-hmm. it's a a woman accusing Bill Clinton of rape and sexual assault, in which case it's been magically discredited because Democrat wand of power. So, I think the apology is important. And I, you know, I hugely appreciate you, Linda, for, for bringing this up. I don't have a huge answer. But I do think that there has to be some acknowledgement of the basic thing which is becoming inescapable to most men about a lot of women, which is that they say they want equality, but they don't. They want all the benefits of equality, but they don't want the less pleasant stuff that comes with, with equality. And... You know, it's it's easy to say, well, just make up your mind, women, like there's some collective brain or anything like that. And and every woman is going to make that decision about where you stand on the responsibility continuum. And there are a lot of women, I know them, a lot of women who say, I don't want to be equal to a man. I want a man to take care of me because I want to be a mom and I want to do this and I want to do that. So I don't want to be equal. And that's, I, <laughs> I have no problem with that. There are other women who say, I want to be perfectly equal to a man, and for whatever, you know, that's fine too. But I think that the honesty needs to be there, and that you cannot increase equality without increasing responsibility. That you cannot increase equality without increasing responsibility. And I think there's been a bit of a weasel stuff that's gone on for a lot of women, again, a lot of women, not all, right? Where, you know, when... When equality works out for the benefit of women, the yay equality, and when responsibility doesn't work out for women, then they go back to this inequality and victimhood and all this kind of stuff. But there's no particular conscious thing. And w- women are going to have to find a way to, to sort this out. I mean, the, 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 the society has become so toxic against men that any time a man tries to insert himself, it's like Godzilla is stomping down a model of Tokyo with real people in it. So... 
I appreciate that. The, the apology is fantastic. But the apology, apology has to be followed by action. Right? Mm-hmm. Apologies that are not followed by action are manipulative, right? Yeah. You know, I, hey, honey, I'm sorry I was cheating on you. I'm sorry about those 12 stewardesses, but, you know, sorry. Right? <laughs> and then next week it's 12 more stewardesses. Well, I'm sorry about, you know, it's like, come on. Don't, don't. The apology is nice, but I think that the level of mistrust, if the apology isn't immediately followed by action, you know, like, I'm really sorry that women are using the state to eviscerate men in divorce. So I'm going to tell my sister that she has to stop taking so much money from her ex-husband and let him see the kids. And if she doesn't, there will be significant consequences. I'm not going to talk to her. I'm going to do X. I'm gonna, whatever it's going to be, right? So, because the, the apology is great, but the, if the apology is not followed by action, it's worse than no apology at all, because it doesn't raise hope, right? So, if you know, if there's a woman who's acting badly in your life, they say this to women as a whole, not you in particular. But if there's a woman who's acting badly, then say to the men, like, I'm really sorry, I didn't do anything about this before, but I'm damn well going to do something about it now. Sit down, have those uncomfortable conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, you okay. can say to women, stop sleeping around, stop dragging your husband, your ex-husband through divorce court, stop taking all this alimony, you didn't earn it. Right. Having sex with a guy and then demanding money for it after you stop having sex with him, I think we all know what that's called. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't exactly divorce. So I, I think the, the apology is great, followed by particular action is, I think, the most powerful thing, and I would argue really the only thing. And, and, and with recognition that, given what's going in society, men have some suspicion that um, it may be because women are scared of changing demographics in society, that that's why this is happening. So mm-hmm. sorry for the long spiel. Um, it's, it, what, what do you think of all this? Is this is uh, of any value? Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of more of a focus on, um, yeah, just kind of making it known to other women might be even more helpful than um, apologizing directly to men. Um, But yeah, following up with the ostracism, which by the way, it's funny, I have kind of that exact situation I'm helping a friend through and, and, and um, giving that exact advice um, not to take out money and, you know, get on your own two feet, that kind of thing. That is very impressive. And if, if that behavior can be universalized, um, the world can be saved. I mean, I, I believe it is that serious. So I hugely appreciate uh, the stand that you're taking uh, on that. And, and look, we all need people to take a stand for the best that we can do. You know, people around there, oh, yeah, you go, you get him, girl. You go get that alimony. You deserve it, huh, right? Yeah. Why should you ever have to work again? You know, he treated you badly, and you deserve taking for everything. You're not yeah. helping people. Yeah. Like, people who do that, they're not helping people. Yeah, and there's a lot of, like, laughing at men and, um, you know, ridiculing their husbands and just putting them down. Um, and it, it's just, it, yeah, that needs to be stopped. Oh, yeah, I have... Uh, I left women who did that once. Right. You know, I heard about that, and I'm like, okay, we're done. Like, no, you don't get to be that two-faced. You don't get to tell me you love me, and then when you're around this 
vicious little Kevin, I'm suddenly a jerk and a, you know, irresponsible and what else? Like, forget it. No. Uh, Two-faced people are repulsive to me. At least, you know, tell me I'm a jerk to my face, but don't, you know, <laughs> don't do that stuff. Um, yeah, and, and it is very tempting, right? And of course, if you don't do it, you might uh, experience some negative social repercussions, right? I mean, if, if other people are slagging their, the men who they claim to love aren't slagging and putting them down, and you say, I'm not participating in this. This is gross. Aren't these men you're supposed to love? Why the hell are you putting them down? These men who get up early and sacrifice and, and work hard and, you know, keep uh, the lawnmower in tune. I mean, what are we putting these people down for? Mm-hmm. So, no, that's great. I mean, th- these are the, they sound like small actions, but they are huge because they have a massive ripple effect. Yeah, and you're right. That is, I mean, I, I think you've spoken about it before as far as like women's preference for, you know, social conformity. And, and so that's really hard for, you know, the networks of, of women um, to speak up. And, and it's not popular to argue with other women. Um, but yeah, that's that's where we need to go. Well, if it's any consolation, men have often had to go to war. And if I had to speak up in a social engagement where I might, which might make me a little unpopular, I think I'd rather do that than face bullets. So, you know, this oh, is yeah. the war that women have to face. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's tough. And if they don't face it, well, the other one might come anyway. So, yeah. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to mention? I appreciate the no. question. I'm sorry if I rambled on too much, but uh, I had a lot of thoughts. <laughs> oh, yeah. I appreciate all your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Linda. A great pleasure to chat. Feel free to call in again. Thank you. All right, up next is Kavi. He wrote in and said, Stefan, during some of your recent shows, you proposed and reaffirmed the idea of needing heroes and either being a hero yourself or supporting a hero in order to fight the ever-growing evil in the world. You also mentioned that only about a thousand people have shaped the course of human history for our species. So my question is, what kind of heroism are you talking about? At the current rate of growth of evil in the world, do we need more heroes than hero supporters? Must the heroes we need be of the influential caliber to be added to the list of 1,000? Or is being a peaceful parent and spreading philosophy heroic enough to turn the tides at this stage? That's from Kavi. Hello, Kavi. How are you doing? I'm good, Steph. Good. Nice to chat with your brother. How are things uh, for you today? Uh, things are pretty good. Uh, just a disclaimer, my... Uh... My place is right next to a road, so if you guys are hearing a lot of feedback, just let me know and I can mute myself while you're talking. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks. Well, you know, maybe a year or two ago I'd have said, yeah, focus on that peaceful parenting stuff. I'm not so sure about that time frame anymore. So mm-hmm. I think that um, I think uh, people need to put themselves in a more public role. If... Uh, if they're at all capable. And by capable, I don't mean is it easy or is it fun. I mean, what I do, it's generally fun. It's not always easy. But um, I, I think that, that you have to. You know, the, you shouldn't have to. I think it's important. And the reason for that is that, I, I got to tell you, Mike, sorry to startle you, <laughs> Mike, Mike, I see these comments a lot. And, and do you see where people say, Steph, you're speaking aloud the thoughts I've always had? Yeah, there are certain videos that trigger those comments uh, more than others, but most definitely. It seems as if you're the voice for a voiceless 
group of people without question. Right. And why, Mike, why do you think, why do you think people say that so much? I mean, I know you just described it, but I think it, why do you think that's so important for them to hear the voice outside their head? Well, there's lots of people in, you know, quote unquote, real world jobs, where if you talk about anything that's politically incorrect, not only will you be terminated, but you'll probably be unemployable if you ever need a reference in the future. So there's a lot of people that feel rightly or wrongly, from my perspective, that they can't talk about things. I don't know that that's true. And they can certainly talk about it in their private life. They don't have to be, you know, walking into the boardroom <laughs> talking about race and IQ, potentially. But uh, lots of people that feel they can't talk about it. And then, you know, they don't talk about it with anyone else. I'm wrong for having these thoughts. Maybe some white guilt kicks in or, you know, just typical social disapproval. And then they hear someone else saying what they believe confidently. And it's like, oh, good, I'm not crazy. Someone else actually thinks this, too. Whew, okay. All right. I don't have to worry about myself right. nearly as much anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, our, our intelligence and our confidence is to some degree socially constructed because we're social animals. You know, the courage of the wolf is in the pack, not in the wolf alone. The wolf alone can't win much. The wolf in a pack, right? So, so the courage and the effectiveness of the wolf is in the pack, is in the tribe, not just in the wolf. And this is why to separate human beings from each other is to render them powerless. And this is why when you have the courage to speak your mind, to bring forward information that is difficult for people to hear but is important, you strengthen people because you create a pack, you create a tribe. But the tribe is those who know. The tribe is those who can speak. The tribe is those who can question. The tribe is those who follow the facts. And we have all accumulated an, a near-infinite series of data points just by being alive. Just by being alive. And when you start to put forward the theories that collect and organize those data points into a coherent whole, that is extraordinarily empowering for people extraordinarily empowering for people. You know, we just did this video on Venezuela and people were saying, well, Bernie Sanders wants to bring exactly the same thing to the United States. Okay, there's power. There's power. You know, like there are these... I was talking with, uh, with my family today about commercials. And we were going through, I was going through with my daughter the economics of, of commercials, you know, like the old thing. TVs are not in the business of bringing shows to viewers. They're in the business of delivering viewers to advertisers, and they use shows to do that, but their job is to connect your eyeballs to the advertiser. And, when, and we were talking about commercials, and I remember when I was a kid, there were two sets of commercials. One was for seatbelts, and it was always the same damn commercial. It was some horribly mutilated, mashed-up guy in a wheelchair missing an arm who'd be saying something like, well, it was a really short drive, you know. It's just supposed to go about about a quarter of a mile down the road. Got a quarter of a mile down the road. Next thing you know, Mack truck comes into sight, and look at me now, I just because I, I, I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. And, and <laughs> you know, because he's talking out the side of his mouth and drinking some joy juice from a 
straw, it, you know, it stays with you. And the other one was for drunk driving. And, and there was also one that's smoking. A guy was trying to smoke through a hole in his throat. And so, you know, look at the consequences and step back. You know, Venezuela is looking at the consequences and stepping back. So helping people to connect the dots. And connecting the dots is taking the stars and turning them into a constellation, right? You can tell a story looking at the sky and looking at the stars if you know the constellations. Right? This is Orion. This is Little Dipper, Big Dipper, you know, all, all this Cassiopeia, all the things, right? So you can take random points of light and make story, make stars. It comes together. It makes sense. And this is most of what I do. It's trying to give you those click moments where what seems like random data points is not random. Is not random. And that is a great challenge for people, but it gives them great strength. When you can organize people's data points into something that has a narrative and makes sense, it's not false. Narrative sounds bad, but it, it, it kind of clicks and makes sense. That empowers people enormously. And secondly, when you can connect people to others who are, I say like-minded, all minded people are like-minded. All thoughtful people are like-minded. All reasoning people are like-minded. Just as all scientific people are all people who follow science or science, scientists. So when you say to people, look, you can use these principles to organize all the disparate stars of your experience points into coherent constellations that tell a story, boom. Now, instead of just randomly absorbing experience, like a sunbather absorbs vitamin D, they now have a purpose to pursue experience and Somebody who has no principles doesn't really know what to read next. Somebody who has principles says, okay, well, I need this piece of information. I need this piece of information. This perspective is interesting. I trust this person. This data point is essential to me now. It gives them a purpose in their life. Principles is the same as purpose. So if you're out there helping people to join together, typing into computer code, letters, into stories, experience, into hypotheses and theories and predictions, then you are helping to knit together their mind into purpose and morality and love, kindness, compassion, courage, strength. All of these things require the knitting together of disparate data points into a narrative. I mean, if, if you're just out there measuring where Mars is in any particular time, you're just, you know, just jotting a bunch of data down. But if at some point you figure out the retrograde motion and the heliocentric solar and then you, ah, now it all makes sense. Now I know where Mars is going to be, I know where it's going to be in the future, and all that. It's beautiful out here, I just wanted to mention. I'm kind of far out, and there are deer all around me. 
<laughs> so lovely. Anyway, so you can only do that in a public forum, and you don't have to put yourself at risk for this. I mean, obviously, don't break any laws, um, and the degree to which you can communicate important ideas, you can do so anonymously. And people don't have to know if you're a man, a woman, tall, short, hairy, bald, old, young, doesn't matter, black, white, doesn't matter. Just get the ideas out there. You never know. You never know which spark is going to ignite someone who can shape the future. You know, there are lots of people who dropped great ideas into my mind as I went through the years. And the degree to which I'd, I'd list them all, <laughs> I'd name them all, even the people I knew and met, but I don't know the degree to which they accept or, or go with all that I say, so it's not my place to do so, but I, can, I could spend half an hour listing them all off. People who've influenced me, people who've dropped mind sparks into my current inferno. And if they do like what I'm doing, then they have good reason to be proud of the ways in which they have shaped what I approach, how I approach it, and how I communicate it. Who knows? Who knows who you can motivate? Who, you don't know. You might write some blog post that's seen by eight people, but one of those people has a gift of oratory that is beyond anyone's imagination at present. Or maybe they're just gorgeous. <laughs> Milo. And they can do that. They use, use that leverage to gain public attention to great ideas. Maybe they are very rich. I've had uh, people offer me enormous sums of money to pursue what I'm doing. I don't want to because I want to keep focused on you. I want to keep focused on you. I want to keep focused on you. I, I don't want to be in the business of delivering you to advertisers or you to think tanks or you to whoever. I want to be in the business of delivering philosophy to you. And that's a very strict economic relationship, which I'm going to maintain the purity of from now until my last show before I die. So I think it is important. The last thing I'll say is you don't know what you're capable of until you continue to extend yourself. You don't know. I wouldn't have guessed. I always knew I was going to do something great, or at least that's what I wanted to do. And I always knew I was going to do something big. I thought it was going to be in the realm of the arts, maybe a little bit in business, but you don't know. I am amazed at what I can do. You know, when I come up with a great connection, when I come up with a great insight, when I come up with a great argument, and I communicate it in a way that's really compelling to people, I'm amazed. Why do I keep doing these shows? Because I don't do the same shows. Why do I keep having conversations with listeners? Because it's not the same conversation. Different approach, different connection, different assemblage of the detritus of experience. I try, it drives Mike nuts, <laughs> I try to repeat myself as little as possible, and if I do repeat myself, I mention that I do. 
because I want to challenge myself to have new ways of talking about things new ways of approaching things. I want people to tune into this show, to listen to this show, and to hear something that they have not heard before. Mike, you used to listen to other people, right? And, and did you find a little bit like, ah, <laughs> I've heard that analogy before. I've heard that story before. I've heard that argument before. Well, I still do. I try and find, I can normally last about a month listening to someone, whether they're a radio shows, show host or a podcast host. And after a month, normally I feel like I've gotten like 95% of all that is to be gained from listening to this person communicate. And it's like, all right, time to jump off and find something else to listen to and glean some value from it. But yeah, diminishing returns <laughs> for most people that I listen to without question. And, and we try not to do, you know, we try not to do the same stuff, right? I'm always challenging yourself to, to try something new, to, to try a new connection, a new approach, new data source. And it's um, you don't you don't know what you're capable of in the realm of human communication, which is an infinite field. You understand? Like if you're a singer, okay, you've got your instrument and you can perhaps hit this you know high C or whatever. You can hit some note, and then you know until you get old, you can hit that note, right? Unless you have a cold or something. So there you know, right? If you're an athlete, okay, you can run this fast. You can go a tiny little bit faster if you you know the next tenth of a second takes you a year <laughs> to shave down or something like that. And in the realm of human communication, it's infinite. It is an infinite playground of essential connection. And you don't know what you can do. You don't know how deep you can dig. You don't know what courage you might be capable of. You don't know what eloquence you might be capable of. You don't know how your unconscious is going to feed up to you these glorious, gloriously assembled sequences of deep and interconnected thought. I can tell you this, though. People say, oh, I'd love to do stuff. I want to really want to do what you do. Really want to do what you do. Who's stopping you? Who's stopping you? We don't live in the land of Stalinesque censorship. Yeah, there's social disapproval. <laughs> everything that great, everything that's great that we have comes from somebody willing to vault over social disapproval. Ah, oh, Steph, I want to do what you're doing. Do it. Trust me, there's room up here at the top of the mountain for about a billion more people. And it's better if there's more of us. I'd like to connect as well as helping people connect. But that means people willing to help connect as much as I do. Steph, I want to do what you're doing. Who's in your way? It's not me. It's only you. It's your fear. Your fear that negative things will happen if you speak the truth, to which I adroitly counter, you know how bad things go when people don't tell the truth, right? You think bad things happen if you tell the truth? Try not telling the truth, as so many of us have done for so many years. Try not telling the truth and see what happens. You think bad things will happen? 
if you talk about freedom or human biodiversity or relations between the genders or feminism or men's rights or peaceful parenting, anti-circumcision, no spanking, race and IQ, incompatible religiosities, potentials thereof. You think bad things are going to happen if you talk about those things? What do you think is going to happen if you don't? Where do you think the world is going to go if you don't speak the truth? Because no one No, let me rephrase that. You can't fundamentally mourn a right you don't even exercise. Somebody said to me, Steph, you have the right to fly by flapping your hands. I'd be like, no. I don't care. (laughs) Can't do it. Doesn't matter. And the reason why soft censorship precedes hard censorship is that if people can frighten you into not speaking the truth, then you won't really care or have much to lose if they take away your right to speak. You understand? If you already are self-censoring, then external censorship costs you almost nothing. I mean, it's a final confirmation And it's almost a relief then, because if you're self-censoring, you at least have the choice to speak out. Ah, you know, next week, next month, next year, I'm going to do it. I'm going to speak out and tell the truth. And if you decide not to, in any way, again, don't risk yourself, don't break any laws, obviously. But if they can get you to shut up out of fear... And they take away your free speech, you you won't be losing anything. That's why this soft censorship always has to precede the hard censorship. It doesn't mean it's inevitable. It just means that's where things may go without people speaking out. So I wish we could tend our own gardens and make a peaceful world, I am concerned and I suspect that it may be too late for only that, which is a shame. But it may be. And I think it is. Time for energetic public dissemination of truth, of reason, of evidence, so the people can be trained into handling uncomfortable ideas without freaking out. Because less intelligent, uneducated fools cannot entertain uncomfortable ideas without lashing out. Aristotle said it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain an opposing idea without accepting it. You know, to play devil's advocate, to say, oh, well, this idea is pretty shocking, it's pretty surprising, but I'm... I'm not going to scream at someone for coming up with something that I find unusual or upsetting or whatever it is. I mean, the growth of the show, the growth of this conversation over its entire evolution has been based upon me not freaking out over new information. 
saying, okay, that's surprising. <laughs> let's, let's see what the facts are. I've never heard this before. Let's find out what the facts are. I didn't know this data. Let's see if it holds true. And when you bring people startling information, you are helping them to understand that opposing ideas won't kill them. <laughs> they won't die if they hear something that is upsetting to them. Now, if they never hear anything upsetting to them, you never train them in that toughness. And we can't have a civilization without the ability to entertaining without the ability to entertain uncomfortable ideas, or at least explore them. But when we call in these massive airstrike ad hominems on people who are simply bringing up challenging ideas, we are saying we want the soft tyranny that precedes the hard tyranny. And while it is not yet a hard tyranny, it can be prevented. But that requires that you act. Does that help at all? Yeah, and it gives me a perspective of kind of where you're coming from with, um, I guess, what, you, what you're defining as a hero um, and, and setting, um, setting the ideas known in a public setting. Um, I think a lot of what you said sounds like it's, it might be coming from a place of really taking advantage of the Internet and its ability to spread information so quickly and, you know, kind of casting a, a huge net, essentially, in that way. Um, you know, even, even in the last call, um, you know, you were talking about how the internet is most likely, um, well, it's, it's, it's probably a big factor for why the, um, people that are ascribing to feminism has, has dramatically decreased. And, you know, if, if the internet really did have that impact, that's amazing. And it's, I guess it's more, um, more of a reason to, stay focused on on using it as a platform to uh you know to spread information that's going to be impactful um yeah i mean listen i've i've helped that right i mean some of that percentage point some some portion of that percentage drop i'm taking claim to right you know, when I when I drive to Detroit and I stand up when people have threatened to blow up the stage I'm standing on and deliver a great, funny, engaging speech, yeah, I'm taking that medal, of course. And it doesn't all have to be online, obviously, right? I mean, you can have conversations with anyone, anywhere. Do you know how amazingly hungry people are? for any conversation of depth and meaning. Any conversation of depth and meaning. People yeah, are yeah. dying of thirst for liquid thought. Sorry, go ahead. I was just agreeing, uh, saying saying that I do. I, I, I see that on a somewhat daily basis, I guess, just with uh, people I interact with. Um, and... And I, I think it's 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 when I actually am, am sharing ideas, uh, so much of which I've learned from you. So definitely want to thank you for planting seeds. Um, and uh, it, when I when I do bring up ideas, um, I definitely am, am not. I'm trying to be as easy going as possible and, and non obtrusive as possible, so that I'm not scaring away anyone. Um, and I think that's when I do see that uh, 
that thirst that you're talking about is, is, you know, when it's not, um, something that is kind of slamming against their cognitive dissonance or something. Um, and they, they have a way to kind of slowly eat, eat on it a little bit. So yeah, I definitely see that. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it can be, because you also, you know, maybe you're not the most, I'm not mean you, but maybe one, some person out there, if you're listening to this, maybe you're not the most confident or eloquent or, or technologically adept or charismatic or, you know, maybe you're not. Okay. So find someone who is and set them alight with facts. Mm. Right. You know, you don't have to be. Freddie Mercury to write a song for Freddie Mercury. Right? There are lots of people who are dismal performers and great songwriters and they get their stuff out there. So you can find someone who is an amazing person who you admire And you can enlighten them with new arguments. Maybe you follow someone online. Maybe there's somebody who's really inspiring to you. And maybe they're missing something. See if you can find a way to contact them and give them this information. Tweet stuff at them. Send them what is important. We get a good conveyor belt of good information coming in. I referred to the Orthodox Jew who wrote. He's a big fan of the show. Gave me some information. Many years ago, a wise man pointed me in the direction of the Christian role in ending slavery. It was one email. One email. People are peppering me all the time with, have you read this guy? Have you seen this guy? This guy's really cool. This woman is fantastic. You should do this. You should do that. And we listen. We review. We research. We act. And maybe these people aren't, don't have my abilities, or, but they can help. You, know, you can be the guy who helps the sharpshooter reload, <laughs> even if you can't see that well. Metaphorically. Right. So, but, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not so sure about this being so totally gentle that nobody, you know, gets upset. You know, sometimes... You know, so many, many years ago, a little over 100 years ago, it's theorized that there was a, a giant asteroid or meteor that hit the Siberian forest. Leveled trees for hundreds of miles. Some people even think it may have been a part of a black hole or something, but I doubt that. But anyway, now, how did they find where the meteor hit? in Siberia over a hundred years ago. Well, what they did was they followed all the trees back, right? So, the, you know, you imagine, right? You, all these trees are pointing out from the direction of the blast. You know, like, like how kids draw sunbeams from a sun. They draw those lines all the way around. All of the trees were blown down by this impact. And they were all pointing away from the center of the blast. That's how they found where the meteor hit. Well, maybe that's how people find you. From all the people running away from you. 
Does that make sense? It definitely does. Um, and I mean, uh, I'd like to maybe focus a little bit more on, um, I guess, the the I guess the disruption um, aspect of uh, philosophy and bringing truth uh, in a public setting, um, and the timeline we have, and I, I'm. I know that neither of us can really say, oh yeah, you know, we have this timeline to work with, but I, for some reason I have this, um, this desire and this passion to, to, uh, get things, you know, get things going as fast as possible because I, I just see Good. the rate of, of, Good. of evil. That's, that's all you need. Listen, that's all you need. That's the only thing you need to say about it. Just get it going as fast as possible. Yeah. I mean, that, that, what, what else, you know? Like, seriously, like, I mean, it, let's say that you, you are choking on a fishbone, right? When do you want someone to try the Heinrich maneuver? Later? When they're ready? When they feel comfortable? No. You want that fishbone out of your throat pretty much as fast as possible, right? Yeah. Well, and that's why... I look at I look at the aggression against children in the world, and I, I get so um, I want to utilize the activism skills that I have to go out and be extremely disruptive in whatever I guess my local community. But uh, maybe I can share those videos online, and you know my success stories and Facebook or whatever it is, which I've s- somewhat done. But but that's the passion I'm talking about. I see I see something, and I'm just like, yeah, I got to change this. All right, I have to. You know, I have to stand up and, and get other people um, standing up with me. And so that's where my question is really rooted is, you know, what, um, like what type of heroism is, is really going to turn the tides um, at this stage? Um, is it going to be that in your face disruptive type heroism or is it, is it going to be more uh, spreading information online at a, you know, to a huge audience, very similar to what you have. Um, that's that's kind of where I'm still. Well, the more look, the more people, the more people you can reach, the better. Just statistically, that, that's the advertising principle, right? Uh-huh. I mean, the more impressions you get, the, I mean, the better. So yeah, the the bigger an impact, the more people you can reach, the better you're doing. So from that standpoint. I'd, I'd go with that strategy. Now, you know, in terms of what, what activism is possible, well, first of all, you you have to stay healthy. You have to be able to sleep. You have to enjoy your life. So whatever you're most passionate about that you can sustain, I think is important. You know, some people are better at being uh, provocateurs, right? Just going out there and shitposting and, and trolling. And I don't mean trolling in a hostile way, but just going out there and stirring shit up. And there's, you know, a whole bunch of people I can think of in the freedom movement who do that very well. Now, that's not my particular style, but it's fine, you know? I, I don't mind, you know? I, don't, I, I have no problem with it. There's not one way to do it. There are people who uh, go out and are sort of gently and reasonably patient and um, uh, continue to Hammer, hammer away with very, very soft, soft chisels 
at uh, some of the structures that, that the underbelly of the structures that, that holds immorality aloft. I have no problem with that either. Whatever they're passionate about that they can sustain and has some positive effect, I think is great. I think is great. And so whatever you're passionate about that you can sustain and that has an effect, right? Those, those are the three things. First of all, if you can have an effect but you're not passionate about it, it won't be sustainable. If you can sustain something you're passionate about that has no effect, then it's pointless and self-indulgent, right? Right? If you have an effect but you can't sustain it, well, then you, you can't be in it for the long haul. When we need a multi-generational change, this is a marathon, not a sprint, in my opinion. And I think those three things, right? What you're passionate about, what's effective, that you can sustain. Uh, I think that is. And the reason you have to be passionate about it is because most people don't have the ability to evaluate information. All they can do is evaluate people, which is why when people want to discredit what you're saying, they use silly ad hominem attacks, right? Because people can't. So you have to be happy in what you're doing. You have to be enthusiastic in what you're doing. You have to enjoy what you're doing. It can't be some self-flagellating punishment of, of your very existence and capacity to live and enjoy yourself because you have to sacrifice yourself for the future. I mean, this is because you may be completely right, but the problem is people will look at you and say, well, that guy's not happy, so. Yeah, that actually reminds me a lot of uh, what Adam Kokesh has, uh, has mentioned in some of his speeches about um, when he was early on in activism and how he was just so pissed off and that anger really showed in, in, uh, his, what he, the ideas he was bringing up and, you know, he's standing in front of a, a group of people and he's like, I'm really pissed off and I'm upset and, and look at how depressed I am because of all this information. Now come join me, you know, in my depression. And the, um, you know, I think that's very, very true in, in, in paralleling what you're saying is you don't want to, you want to, you want to show, uh, some kind of positive passion in, in what you're spreading. Yeah, and it you know it doesn't hurt to you know humanize like to, to show people something other than activism, you know. Like I just put out a review of Doom 2016 because <laughs> I, I, I like me some shooting, demon shooting, and um, yeah, it's nice. You know, I think it's nice for people because I can connect with them at a different kind of level and something which a lot of people are are passionate about, which is video games, as am I. And so, you know, it's another way of of connecting and and reassuring people that you're not some sort of machine of of principles that is like some cantilever opening the jaws of the future but you're a human being who you know struggles and plays and has fun and has setbacks and has enthusiasms and you know it's a way of yeah i'm i'm like you (laughs) you know just just louder (laughs) yeah those are my suggestions right so maybe you can um, maybe you can define what you meant between a, a hero and a hero supporter. Well, I think I did already, which is that if you don't feel like you want to take your place in a public sphere, then you can research and get information to people who can make a difference. Right. So so let's say that there's someone, you know, Mr. X out there or Madam X out there, someone who you think has a great platform. And is very good at communicating things, but let's say that the past five things you've seen them talk about 
they're missing an essential piece of information. Okay, well, then go help them with that information. Put together a short, um, a, a short refined email saying, you know, here's what I think you're, I love your work. Here's what I think you might be missing. Uh, here are the facts. I mean, this is what we get all the time. We get this all the time. And it's great. And it's great. And then people say, well, you know, here's what you missed. Like some guy was writing to me recently about criticizing. He was criticizing some of the my take on Greece and the EU. I've got notes about it. I'm going to try and look it up at some point next week. But this is um, what you can do. Um, get Get the information to the people who can get it out there, right? So, all right, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but thank you very much for your questions. Uh, I think they're very helpful, and I, you know, I strongly urge people, you know, don't, don't plan too much. Don't plan too much. Don't plan too much. It's ready, aim, fire, not ready, aim, 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 right? And um, when it comes, you know, the analogy to, to what I'm talking about, I mean, it's get the knowledge, and start sharing the knowledge. Are you going to get it right? No. Are you going to be perfectly consistent over the course of your entire intellectual career? Of course not. You're consistent with the truth, hopefully, but you're not always consistent with all your prior opinions because we learn and we grow. And new information comes to light that wasn't available before. And so just start doing it. If you wait for things to get perfect, everything goes to hell. Just go out, make your mistakes, and start doing what you're doing. And uh, you'll learn as you go. There's no particular manual that says here's exactly how to do it because a lot of what we're doing is in a new medium and it's new information and it's a new approach. Just go out, do your very best, and continue to do your very best, continue to push yourself, continue to get better. That's how all things of quality and excellence manifest. So thanks, Emil, and let's move on to the next caller. Okay, up next is Richard. Richard wrote in and said, Do you believe that the way society reacts to quote-unquote deadbeat dads compared to the motherly equivalent, displays that the man is almost solely responsible for the pregnancy-slash-child, as in the vitriol demonstrated against the father abandoning his duties, compared to a mother. That's from Richard. Richard, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Steph? I mean, everyone's well, asking far, so you're probably fine. <laughs> what, well, yeah, what personal place is this coming from, my friend? Um... Uh, Okay, I knew this was coming. This is not a theoretical uh, question, I can tell from the very beginning. So, when I was... Uh, where, do we, where do I even start with this particular question? Because uh, the beginning is usually good. Um, so, my parents split up when I was really young. Um, I certainly can't remember the event, so at least that far back. Um and the reason I was always given for this was they simply grew apart. And like, oh, yeah. Divergent interests. Just like two trees pointing <laughs> in the opposite direction. They just, we just, we grew apart. I have later come to... You know how, you know how when you park your car on a, on a hill and you yeah. don't put the emergency brake in and, you know, you don't put, and, and you leave the, and you leave it in neutral and the car just rolls down the hill, you know, you just, you just rolling apart, just drifting apart, you and the car. Didn't do anything. Anyway, go on. And, of course, this had nothing to do with the fact that my dad had helped my mom through her nursing training and was broke. Sorry, that you're... So you, can you speak... Uh, let, sorry, let me sorry. not ask you to... No, let me not ask you to change things. I'll turn up my volume a bit. But sorry, go okay, ahead. It's sorry. just a little, little quieter than the last callers, but I can manage. 
Okay, so, and I was saying, and I have later come to the conclusion that this had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that my my dad had uh, completely, like, he had helped my mom get through her nursing training, and yeah. as such was doing very well financially. Nothing right. to do. <laughs> so she used him to get trained, and then she hypergamied up from him, right? Well, it wasn't even directly to somebody else, but um, essentially that's how what I'm thinking happened, even if it's not something she's con- consciously aware of. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, this isn't particularly my dad, but because my dad, I still in contact with, I see him fairly regularly. Um, still very much. And did you have sorry, Robert, Did you have contact with him throughout your childhood? I did. Sort of. <laughs> It's never been his, uh, he's, he's very much made an attempt to stay in my life as much as he possibly could post breakup with my mom. Um, as much as, you know, would be allowed. Um, you mean as much as your mother would allow him? It's not even so much that, um, well, he didn't. Well, then who's not allowing him? Come on, man. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry. Um, did the court not allow him? I mean, I, I don't okay, want so to cut my way through a thicket of right. justifications here. Okay, but um, something did happen later on where my mom uh, got involved with a, a doctor. She obviously was a nurse um, and later got involved with... This is a big time span. This is a few years. Um, got involved with a doctor who... Hmm. Um, it later turned out with cheating on her with some other nurse from the same hospital and eventually found Gosh. out. Um, Never heard of this. Whatever. Nurses are harems of doctors? <laughs> Next thing you know, actresses will be harems of producers and directors. Oh, man. Things we've never heard of but, before. Yes. So my mom uh, later, he, he chases a job that was more lucrative, this doctor, um, up in. No, no, no. Don't give me, don't give me, don't give me places. Don't give me names. Keep everything as anonymous as possible. But please go on. Okay. But it was, yeah, chased a job that was further, fairly far afield. Yeah. So my mom goes with him, has a custody custody battle with my dad. Um, we know how these go, regardless of who would have been the better parent. <laughs> like, Sorry, did she and your dad share custody? Um, I believe that was how it's meant to go, but then she. T- that we were like she took me to the new place, and then it wasn't really possible to cart me up and down between countries. Sorry, I don't understand this. <laughs> so Sorry, let me happen. let me just back up a little here. Okay, cool. and I'm I'm no expert on this, and yeah, yeah, but but my understanding is that if you share custody, then one of the things is you can't move, right? I mean, you you can't just go. Hey, I'm going to Guatemala for three years with the kid. It's like nope, share custody, can't do that, right? I I guess that's something I've never really questioned. Then. Um, I know there was. But your mother would have, if you wanted to go to some place, uh, some other country, then this, she'd have trouble with your dad because I mean, he would be sharing custody. So then she'd have to try and get that relinquished, right? Otherwise, I think she'd be not able to go, if I understand it correctly. Um, you, you're probably right. And there's something I don't understand. But this all happened when I was, what? Eight. Uh, right. But some, like, some point shortly before maybe 10. I, this isn't awfully clear in my memory. Um, and I can tell what happened. I have an awful time trying yeah, to okay. place so it we don't, Okay, so there was some, right. some legal tussle. Yeah. And then you, you did you end up in... I did. I was up there for a total of about six months. Six <laughs> months? Okay, so she went, she went there for six months, and then what I happened? See, it was six to nine months, and then it sort of... Um, 
I don't know if it fell through or what. I never really questioned this, but we eventually come. Wait, wait, what do you mean fell through? His you mean job they broke up? Or he moved back down. No, they hadn't broken up yet, but it didn't last much longer than that. Um, we came And down. do you know why? This was the... I, I don't know why he had to move or we left that uh, our, the house there. And, and you came back? But I do know that I came back down to closer to my my dad. Um, okay. Interestingly... And did you, sorry, did, did, did the doctor and your mom break up? This was later. It wasn't immediately. What's later? I don't know what's happening. <laughs> like, so after we moved back down, it, there was a space of time between that happening and them breaking up. Okay, okay. So okay. they were still okay, together. So things didn't work out for some X reason, and then you it moved did, back, it, and then they broke the up. doctor's job. Okay, the doctor's job. Two. Oh, maybe he got fired. I maybe it didn't work out. Maybe he didn't pass probation. Who knows? All right. Okay, so then you get back. And then your dad, did your dad see you uh, up in X-Land? Did you know? No. Do you remember? Well, it was, I got Whenever I had like a holiday from school, I'd come down. I'd see my grandparents and my dad and stuff, um, but not regularly. While I was okay. up there, um, come back down, uh, and it's somewhere between here. I think it's between the ages of about seven and fourteen that my dad managed to get involved with a a woman who I can only remember as completely toxic. <laughs> <laughs> Fell into that old trap. Um, uh, it's kind of bad because everyone on that side of the family, from myself to his parents to his sisters, and brothers and such, um, were all kind of aware that this woman was bad. I'm jumping all over here. I appreciate this has hopped from one side to the other. But mm-hmm. um, basically, this 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 woman... You know when uh, somebody gets like put into a fresh relationship and that person already has children, and it can either be male or female, but they just hate that other child for existing because their partner's attention is divided between their children and the previous <laughs> children? You mean, do I know when people act like stereotypical evil step-parents from the Grimm's yes, fairy tale? Yes, that, yeah. that happens. Yeah, um, yeah. pretty much okay. behaved like that. Um, this woman? Yeah, this was my dad's partner for when I was about 7 to about 14. Um, this is wait, how a minute, I... wait a minute, wait a minute. Hang on, hang on. Sorry. Sure. Uh, okay, this is deep breath and slow down time because you're like, you're this, like this a Mexican a long jumping bean here, right? story, yeah. Um, no, no, no. No, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> we, can, we can cut to the chase. Right, right? okay. So the, the, the step-girlfriend, let's just call her stepmom, right? Yeah. She the was. stepmom hated you. Yeah. And your dad knew that the stepmom hated you. And he had her around anyway. Um, yes. Why? I, um, uh, Why? Why? Because fuck, she dude? was incredibly manipulative, right? And no, 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 no. No, no, no. Yeah, I, Do I, I not know going give me and... no, no father agency. Right, yeah, I know. Right, you know, I, I'm an equal opportunity I'm... agent adherent, right? Which yep. means that you cannot tell me that your your father was just pussy blinded and she hoovered yeah. it. Okay, dude, dude, we can't both talk at the same time, okay? okay. I know we've got a lot to get through, but it's going to drive me fucking nuts if we talk at the same time, okay? Rough. All right, thank, just just wait till I'm done, <laughs> and I'll try not to over- talk over you, right? I mean, uh, okay. but but just because when I'm trying to make a point and people are talking in my ear, it drives me crazy. Fair enough. Just indulge me and, and do, do your best, <laughs> please. 
Okay. So your father chose, right? I'm telling you, because if this was a woman and, and they say, well, you know, the guy was so manipulative, I say, no, she's got agency, right? Your dad equal, it's the same deal, right? Your dad chose to have a woman around who hated his son. And it's not because she was manipulative. I'm sure she was. Do you know how many people try to manipulate me on a daily basis? The answer is four short of infinity. So no. No, 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 no. That's on your dad. Uh, Yeah, it is. Right, because if you remove your dad's agency, you remove your agency. That's, I mean, what your dad did 20 years ago, whenever the hell it was, I'm really sorry about it. Can't be fixed. What I'm not, con- I'm not concerned about your dad's past or even your past. I'm concerned about your future. When you start taking agency away from your dad, ooh, you're giving yeah. yourself excuses in the future. I, well, she was manipulative, so that's why I ended up standing over uh, a guy's leg uh, sticking out of an alligator's mouth in uh, Florida. <laughs> so, anyway. Okay, so that attitude, certainly for myself, maybe stems from uh, I definitely. Wait, you to... want to know where that story comes from? No, 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 no. Um, I was saying that that, attitude... I, that I kind of hold. Oh, for a long time, I've had to. Oh, I didn't have to, but kind of believe to hold different standards for myself and others. So, I <sighs> easiest way of going about it. so. I expect that kind of choice and that I have agency, I have choices. Um, the actions I choose are my responsibilities. I appreciate that for myself. But I kind of baby others, I guess. <laughs> like Sure. Sure, because because you had to with your dad. Because your dad didn't love you enough to keep a woman who hated you out of your house. I hate to put it that bluntly, but that's what it is. He definitely has more recently... Um, come to realize this and has apologized greatly. Uh, certainly it became crystal clear to him after the manipulation. After the seven left. years of your formative years? Well, this was like seven to fourteen. Yeah, um, Yeah, that would be seven years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Formative. I'm, oh, yeah, it's pretty formative. That's latency to puberty. Yeah. That's pretty formative. And... Uh, like, there's a lot of separate things that I would say came, come together in my life to put a generally negative spin on average female behavior is something I'm going to call this now. <laughs> wait, wait. Okay, hang on. Horrendous, evil, ripley-shredding stepmom from hell is somehow representative of females as a whole now? No. Oh, it has to be, because otherwise your mom, your, your dad just chose a bitch. That wasn't where I was going with that, but... Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, but you're saying that this is somehow female, right? Not that in particular. Um, what I was getting at is my sort of question to the original question about how society views respective parents abandoning duties, right? Um, and how that relates to... Uh, no, it's just the whole thing, I guess. Um and I kind of feel that comes more from women to men than I mean I guess men do also. I, I don't know what we're talking about. Sorry, 
Sorry, I don't know what we're talking about. I don't know what we're talking about. What comes from women to men? So the sort of... Are we dropping your dad? Like we're dropping your dad in your history, right? We're going back to your theory? Or theoretical question? Yeah. I don't mind if we are. I just want to be clear. Yeah, because if we're going to sit here and talk about (laughs) reasons why I might be opposed to things like that, um, we can't possibly be here all day. It's kind of a a long one. Um, Well, okay. So as far as deadbeat dad goes, there are some basic facts. Which are important. Yep. Um, number one, a significant proportion of deadbeat dads aren't even allowed to see their kids or have very limited contact with their children. The the parents who are the dads who are allowed to see their kids generally pay. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly deadbeat dads. It is well, if you don't let a man see his children. If the wife won't let the man see his children, then he has a tough time emotionally getting around to the place where he sends the money every month. Yeah. So that's not unimportant. But of course, you never hear anything about that. No. Um, It is a a form of uh, half serfdom and half enslavement in the gynocentric court system. It's not all over the world, but certainly in America and some other places. Um, debtor's prison was abolished in the 19th century as inhumane, right? You, you can't go to jail for failing to pay a debt. You can lose your credit rating, you can have your garnished your salary, but you can go to jail. Debtor's prison was barbaric, and there's only one place that debtor's prison still exists in the Western world, and that's for men who don't pay absurdly high, often absurdly high alimony and child support. Yeah, I have actually absurdly seen Absurdly high stories about um, I think this is America where the combination of child support and alimony was coming to more than 100% of some guy's income and then they let him out of prison bizarrely enough because the woman realized that he wasn't going to be able to pay her because he was in jail yeah (laughs) Yeah. let's let's ease up on the uh, anal rape because the guy's got to go and make make, uh, mommy some jet work No, it's not funny. I don't know why you're like, this is terrible yeah, stuff, right? I know. It's not funny. It's not funny stuff. I mean, this is like people's lives get destroyed, right? I mean, I'm there as an American actor, no, Canadian actor, uh, made, made a lot of money and, and got divorced while he was making a lot of money, which is a great risk, right? Because if the woman's going to divorce you, she's going to wait until you make a lot of money. And then that yeah. year, boom, that's when she's going to lower. Yeah, the giant dildo of the American family court system on you. Yeah. And so the guy's making a lot of money flying high. And um, he's a comedian. Making a lot of money flying high. Gets divorced. The judge sets his alimony at absurdly high levels because that's the year he was making all this money. Right? Right. Yeah. And then next year, well, is it easy to be a comedian? When you're just going through a brutal divorce, do you, do, you, do you really feel like you can just go make people laugh? Ha ha ha. Right? I mean, you're lucky not to be throwing yourself off a cliff and you, you're not out there making a lot of people laugh. Yeah. So guess what? Didn't make as much money the next year. Did that change anything? Nope. Did the wife say, oh, you know what? Guy's having it tough. I can understand. He's a comedian. Can't make people laugh. I don't know if he did or didn't. That's just my guess, right? I mean, I right. yeah, yeah. speak to his state of mind. But, you know, that's I can understand that being a 
tricky. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. No, didn't change. Didn't change anything. I mean, it's terrifying. And it's insane. You know, we we did an interview with the guy who made the film Divorce Core, C-O-R-P. Mm-hmm. Just rent it. I mean, just literally rent it. Because it, it either help you avoid the situation or it'll help you help someone else avoid the situation or at least to give you compassion to people going through this brutality. I mean, American family court system is, in my opinion, a form of gynocentric gulag. Uh, where men are, are, are enslaved and, and turned into work serfs. You know, people getting all angry at uh, people in China who are not getting paid much to assemble iPhones. <laughs> yeah. How about the uh, toiling serf of men? Of men. You know, you quit your marriage, honey. You just quit your job. You know what happens when I quit a job? I don't get paid anymore. Maybe maybe the guy divorces you. Maybe he doesn't like you. Maybe he finds you unbearable. Maybe you've been sleeping around. Maybe you're an addict. Maybe you're unpleasant. Maybe you pulled the pin on the fat grenade. I don't know. But if a man divorces you, guess what, honey? You got fired. Now, you know what happens when I get fired from jobs? Oh, same thing. I don't get paid. Madness. Yeah. I was just going to uh, say that in a lot of the time, as, as we've mentioned before, uh, even in this, this particular call where somebody mentioned the fact and we came up with the figure that something like 70, was it 70% marriages end in divorce? And most of that is women deciding they're not satisfied. <laughs> No, it's not. Uh, it's not seventy percent, and it varies depending on right uh, your income and level of education and so on. And there, there's lots of ways to get that number very, very low. Like you, there's lots of ways to go into a marriage very confident that it will succeed. I mean, I listen. I come from a a, 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 a massively messed up marriage of my parents, and uh, you know, divorce and battles and you know all the usual nightmare. In fact, I remember when I was 11, I read a book called Made in Heaven, Settled in Court. <laughs> right. right. Marriage is made in heaven, settled in court, which was about all the shit that goes down. I was 11 years old or 12 years old. And I read that book. Found it in the library. I'm like, well, this seems interesting. Yes, quite, quite illustrative. Yeah. And of course, I um, lived in the matriarchal manner, as most of my friends said, single moms and Terrible yep. marriages, yep. right? So I mean, and and I'm I, I you know I met my wife. We got married in eleven months, and we've been together for fourteen years. And we're not getting divorced. We're never going to get divorced. Uh, we love each other more and more every day. She's an amazing woman, and I'm incredibly lucky. And so I knew all of the risks. I wasn't blind to this stuff. I grew up with this stuff. But there's things you can do to make sure it's going to work, which is why I recommend therapy, which is why I recommend self-knowledge, which all this stuff. And, but no, the 70% to my knowledge is that um, divorce is initiated by women 60 to 70% of the time. And the most significant reason given for the divorce right. is not abuse, not neglect, not addiction, but dissatisfaction. Yeah. And in that relation to the previous metaphor, it wouldn't even be getting fired. It would be quitting your job because you don't yeah. like it. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, to get paid. You know, the phone keeps ringing, and these these office chairs 
I don't know, they feel a bit lumpy sometimes. And I like a window that opens in my office and, you know, the glare from the screen, I don't know, my eyes get tired. And sometimes I find the work kind of dull, so I'm quitting, but now you have to pay me forever. Baffling. And that's why, that's why I mean, of course, if you, if you got paid, whether you went to work or not, how many people would go to work? This is why the marriages end. Right. One yeah. of the main reasons, right? If you, you know, and 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 it's it's tragic. I mean, it's it's bad for the men and for the women. Look, if women are so happy, why, and white women in particular are miserable these days, and white women in particular, are pretty much the only group in American society where the life expectancy is decreasing. Decreasing. That's different. <laughs> what? <laughs> Did you not know this? Life expectancy going down in Western countries? No. Only for white women. Right. I did for only any, for white women. Yeah. Mike, if you want to dig that up um, and let me know if you get a hold of that. But I mean, this should be I mean, th- this should be astonishing. I mean, this should be like, what the hell? Yeah. Life expectancy that's... is going down for white women. It's going up for blacks, Hispanic, white women going down. You think that would be a big feminist issue? <laughs> Why? Well, no, you see, they don't want to they don't want to touch that. <laughs> They don't want to touch that. Remember, they're dying earlier. It must be the patriarchy. Um, no, they can't pin that on the patriarchy. You tell me one thing that women have been... Well, not women as a whole, but you tell me one thing that the more extreme versions of these ideologies have been pounding their fists on the table to get that they haven't got? I mean, if feminism has achieved a lot of its goals and women's life expectancy is going down and women's misery is going up, they can't talk about that. It's true. They do normally manage to hold the cognitive dissonance that would allow them to do such a thing. (laughs) That's a tough one. That would be a tough one to get across. Yeah. That would be a tough one to get across and and to blame men. You can blame men for everything. (laughs) I think think we've we've passed that peak. Mm. You know, when we have only 2% of British men self-identifying as strongly masculine, it's kind of tough to pin more shit on the patriarchy you know it's kind of tough when when men are terrified to go on dates with women in college because they're afraid of false rape accusations and and when false rape allegation after false rape allegation destroys men's lives and is roundly exposed by the media and there's no negative consequences for these it's it's at some point it becomes empirically unsustainable and i think we're kind of there like how many of the major sort of high profile rape cases of late have turned out to be false allegations. Like it's been pretty high. A single one <laughs> that turned yeah. out to be legitimate. Like, right. I cannot right. And again, I don't know why you're laughing because these men's I, lives are being Yeah, sorted. I'm like you got to stop this habit. It's really disconcerting. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, we're talking about like it's men's lives being destroyed. It's, it's like it's seriously. Like, I hate to be like a Mister Heavy guy, but it's not funny stuff. No, it isn't. It, what's making and it also means that other men are too scared to date to, and fall in love to to, and they miss out on being husbands and 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 fathers mm-hmm. and and have and being loved. I would say what's and causing having the that purpose is how absurd, like just how mind-bafflingly backward the whole situation is, like, is what? Well, this is why feminism is collapsing, at least in, in right, England like, and America, right? I mean, it's 
you know, you can believe that the Soviet economy is great in the 1920s or maybe the 1930s, you know, by the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Come on. This stuff does have a, a half-life. Yep. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, there's that old saying, like you, you can fool some of the people all the time, you can fool all the people all the time, but you can't. Sorry. You can fool some of the people all of the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And that is um, where we are, I think. I mean, it's we're past that peak, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd have to agree that it. Well, statistically, we've already had this at the show. Um, that it's here we go. I just give you some facts here. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, life expectancy at birth for white, non-Hispanic females in the United States declined slightly from 2013 to 2014. Yeah, it could be a blip, but the uh, increase in death rates only applied to white women, not white men. And it's not huge, but it's, it still seems somewhat significant, especially considering that, you know, uh, smoking is down and, you know, other things are down and uh, in terms of that which you would expect to add to mortality and all that stuff. So. Well, let me just add to the, one of the researchers that compiled the report said it's significant, especially year after year. If you have one tenth of a year's increase in mortality every year, that adds up. So, yeah, it yeah, good. it's it's a dose dependent, a right? Mm-hmm. It's one of those situations where every percentage point is like more more numbers than the last. No, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of graves. It's yeah. a lot of graves. And the other thing, too, you know, one of the great challenges, well, one of the reasons I think why this sort of extreme feminism has has lasted so long is, I mean, extreme feminism is quite a lot of fun when you're young. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to settle down with one guy. You can, what they call, ride the carousel, right? You, you can, you know, just sleep around. You can go partying. You can, right? You don't have to take care of babies, you know, right? You can, you can go work and, and, and guys still buy you drinks and, you know, in, in the sort of hot young flush of your youthful sexual market value peak, I mean, feminism and, and avoiding, you know, motherhood and families and settling down and getting married. I mean, when you're young, that's a pretty good deal, right? And it maybe should be mentioned the degree to which the opinions of young women shape most of the rest of society. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just look at them all, right? The number of stores dedicated to women, as I said before. Yeah. But, but what happens, and then by the time, by the time women hit the wall, by the time women start to get into their sort of early 30s, it depends, it's a little later for East Asians and for blacks, but, but you know, just white women, it start to get into their early 30s, you know, and that, that youthful flush and, and rosy cheeks and all that begins to fade and they start to get that slightly dusty appearance that white women get. You know, they just look look vaguely like not Glenn Beck Cheetos, but you know, kind of dusty, like slightly fluffy. A little little out of focus look that they get. Particularly if they've you know been out sunning, you know, being out in the sun and stuff like that. You know, they yeah. start to look uh, a little gnarly. And um and then, you know, the younger guys start to fall away or they're only around for sex and they start to get attention from guys in their sort of early 40s and it's like, oh, that's gross. <laughs> you know, like these guys who yep. yeah, probably all, or may have already had their families or maybe broken up by divorce and all that. 
And, um, okay, so they're sort of in their mid-30s, and they've only got a couple of years before yeah. it starts to get kind of risky unless you want a kid with four heads and tentacles. I mean, it's, yeah. it's risky and, and difficult. And then they're suddenly on a mission, and they want to cash in their sexual market value, but it's in the rear view. You know, it's uh, it's like trying to flog a stock after the company's gone out of business. It's a little late. And uh, it's miserable. And then what happens is they, you know, go through the baby rabies, right? The, the, the hormones before menopause kicks in, the hormones go nuts trying to get them to reproduce. And they feel like they want a baby a lot of times, like they always got to pee or they're always hungry all the time. They want baby, baby rabies. And the guys are like, whoa. <laughs> That's kind of intense, and I don't want to be used as a sperm donor. And plus, you seem a little unstable, and you don't really have any good track record of long relationships. And, you know, clearly you're sympathetic to feminism, which means that if I displease you in the marriage, you're going to take half the stuff I got. And no thanks, right? Right. No thanks. And so then they pass through all of that. And a lot of them were still like the kind of bewildered, like, well, wait a minute, where are the guys who are all lining up to date me? It's like they weren't lining up to date you; they were lining up to for the eggs. Yep. You're lining up for the eggs, you know. If if you if you leave the meat in the sun for four days, well, nobody wants a burger. Sorry. And yep. uh, and so what happens is the the feminism stuff. The reason why it takes so long for that to turn around is that when you're young, the, the sort of feminist ideal life of, you know, um, little responsibilities outside of work and no stability, no settling down, no marriage, no kids. Do it later. Do it later. Do it later. What a terrible deal that is. If you want to cash in your sexual market value, you do it young. You don't wait till later, for God's sake. It's ridiculous, right? Yeah. It's like saying sell an antique when it's new. I mean, it just makes no sense, right? And so what happens is these women then by the time they don't have kids and can't get married and they're in their 50s or whatever, they're miserable as shit. But they don't talk about it. And subsequently appear to be dying sooner, which is right. And so what happens is, what happens is it takes their, it takes the younger generation. Now, of course, normally we try and learn from our elders. But if if these women didn't have kids, then there aren't daughters there looking and saying, "Well, whatever you did, I don't want to do." But you know, they may right. be aunts, they may be right. They know women like this, and this is why younger women are like, "Oh, to hell with feminism." I saw what it did to the elder generation. You know, childless, loveless, bitter. This is this interesting leads in, leads into what the last caller was talking about. Um, like this is something I actually do. Um, I discuss what would you call it anti-feminism, I guess, but with sort of pro reality, pro yeah. But I do this with people at work, people who seem mildly interested, <laughs> like. Uh, a lot of stuff I actually talked to my dad about, which is the end of that particular tale, is ends quite well um, compared to I know how it could have been. Um, and I guess make it being the voice, even if you can, if you're not particularly gifted in the gift of the gab, um, you can. There are things you can do. My particular thing is that I know people who are who are good at talking and being charismatic. And I have certainly the context to learn how to be technical and have set up my own little gaming community. Um, at the moment, it's just a, a 32-slot two, two uh, TeamSpeak server and a, and a domain name. But um, it you can nearly always do something to help. 
uh, right. TeamSpeak server and a domain name. I'm sorry if I'm not pushing you to the front of the Martin Luther King parade. <laughs> That's no, not much, no, right? Right. But the the idea is it's a community that grows, and the more I huh. kind of pump into it. I mean, I'm not the only voice there, so it's not direct, but. All right. I, um, you know, you you may want to up your game a little bit in these challenging times. Right. Yeah. Well, the idea being that I kind of, I do talk to these people. I do sort of, I am a little bit confrontational. I do challenge people on certain views, not all of them to do with feminism, but um, I, I, I'm a fairly frequent listener. So I, when people start talking about, uh, like the big trends on society being the vulnerable as opposed to the state and tax breaks for massive companies. Um, I guess that's a whole other conversation, but these are sort of things I do talk to people about. Right. Right. Um, just wanted to, the researcher Terry Brennan has estimated that women behind in child support payments are incarcerated at only one eighth the rate of men. Yeah, that's a uh, so. Priority. These these facts are fairly fairly important. Mm-hmm. So look, there's no doubt there are deadbeat dads. And the, the last no. thing that I'll say about there's this, just... yeah, there are deadbeat dads. There are guys who, yeah, I, I I think we may have had one or two of them on this show, right? I mean, they have kids and they bugger off, and that's terrible. And and those men should be uh, held accountable. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reality is that. Um, Women choose who they have sex with. Men will have young young men will have sex with just about anything, and women is women are the ones who choose, right? Yeah. If women listen, listen, ladies, if you want the like men to ask you out, and if you want the men to pay for the dates, and if you want all of that privilege and and all of that, okay, then then it's a seller's market, which means yeah. that you get to pick and choose, which means you're responsible more so than the man that would have takes two to tango. Nope. No, it doesn't. No, because. Young men will launch their tadpoles at just about anything. Mm-hmm. And it's up to women to say yes or no. Men propose, women dispose. Men ask, men ask if they can have sex, and women say yes or no. And so just, well, you know, it just turned out to be a... No, you made that choice. Yeah. You buy the car, and the car's a terrible car. Well, if you went, if you, if there were 20 people trying to sell you cars all at the same time and you chose the worst possible one, guess what? Well, it takes two. The guy sold me a bad car. No, you chose a bad car out of all the cars you could have chosen. You chose to step over the guy who was the mathlete and in the chess club and played a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons because he wasn't cool. And you went with the bad boy. And you went with the Marlon Brando. And you went with the James Dean. And you went with the insert younger reference here. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so they choose these guys for status, for coolness, for whatever, right? And they're, they're jerks. And there were, like, there were 20 other guys around who all would have been better choices but didn't appeal as much to the woman's vanity because she was empowered. <laughs> well, how about you empowering yourself out of my tax dollars? No, no, that's not the same. I, <laughs> I had a thought on specifically uh, tax dollars uh, that I think you might find interesting. Um, so, where was it? I think it's Canada, where Trudeau is considering bringing in, like, sex-divided, race-divided uh, advisory boards, government whatevers. And I had the thought, well, what if 
the the members of that group only collect got to collect their tax from you know like if the women advisory board could only spend money on their things from money they got from women <laughs> oh yeah no like, that wouldn't work right yeah absolutely i mean if, if you only got to i mean the, the, but then then you'd have basically it would be them but like separate countries right so yeah. to speak right can oh yeah a, can you imagine <laughs> oh yeah no it's uh it's <laughs> Yeah, mad. It's mad. They, they only get to spend mad. the money collected from what was it? It's something like uh, is it eighty percent of spending is done by women and oh, eighty percent of domestic spending. Eighty percent of done by women, and they make and almost that much is generated by men. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. This and this is right. Where, where's the equality in that? Right. <laughs> yeah. Where, where, where are the feminists saying, listen, ladies, listen, you all are consuming a lot of taxes, but you're really not paying much. Mm-hmm. You're paying a tiny proportion of the taxes and you're collecting a vast amount of the taxes. That is unfair. That is parasitical. Ladies, you've got to step up. You want all these social programs. You better start earning more money. You better start working harder. You better start working longer. You better start working as many hours as men do. You better start being as focused as men do. So unequal, right? You're taking all yeah. this money collectively from men. That's not what feminism for feminism is supposed to be equality and responsibility, not parasiting off men without even having to give it up. So this Ooh, is that's one hear of the about arguments. that. I, I it was funny because I heard this at work. Somebody was going on about how oh, it's a good idea. They should be more representative. And I'm like, Well <laughs> Well sure, but only if they get to only spend the money generated by the the people they're representing, right? Like and then it was kinda yeah, like, well, Oh, you know when you can hear like the train wheels brakes? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, and that's why that, that's what you mean, right? So you take these disparate points of experience uh, and you you put it together in a way that makes people go whoa, and that's when everything clicks into focus. Well, listen, man, thanks a lot for the call. Really appreciate it. FDRPodcast.com to share the shows. You know, of course, YouTube.com/slash/FreeDomainRadio. You can share that wherever you like on social media and so on. And freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. As you know, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. For the affiliate link, please follow me. I will follow you. Follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Thank you, everyone, so, so much for a wonderful, wonderful evening of conversation. We'll talk to you soon.